The following podcast is brought to you by the game Royal Match. You can directly support Moore's Law is Dead by clicking the link in the description and downloading the game for free. But you can also support Moore's Law is Dead by clicking on the link in the description to go to Vite Ramen and use offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on Tasty Ramen. Or also use the link in the description that brings you to cdkeyoffer.com and use offer code BROKENSILICON to save 25% on all Microsoft keys. And we'll talk about these sponsors more later, but for now, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined by somebody who seems to join every five to eight months. And, you know, actually, it was funny. I remember you reaching out a few months ago, especially because, I mean, the last time you were on, we had such a great AI conversation. And then half of the content out of this channel just has had to touch on AI because now it's in so many devices already and you wanted to come on and i realized um i think i'm just gone for the next three weeks and yeah, yeah. you know it ended up being that you would be the first the first uh new guest of the year and i'm really excited to have you on again you've been on many times but please tell people just so they know if they haven't seen the other episodes who you are uh what you do and why you do it Hey, uh, yeah, I can answer that. I'm Brian Heemskirk. I'm the, I guess I'm now the creative director at Massive Damage, although I'm still in charge of art direction. Okay. But I get to say a little bit more about gameplay as well. So anyways, yeah, and I've worked in art for 10 years, worked on um, a lot of indie games and other things. So, and I do a lot of art as well. So that's mostly me, but I've also madly uh, obsessed with technology as well. So... Well, yeah, and the the spiel I usually give at the beginning of one of these episodes, if someone doesn't know who you are, is, um, and, and there are people like this, but you're they're usually pretty rare. You're one of the people who seems able to talk about not just well, what goes into programming and making a game, but also what goes into the art inside of a game and what goes into the hardware and why we might see wonky performance in some games and and what we might get out of future hardware. Like you're you have a very um keen ability i find to like look at specs and go this is probably why they're doing that and this is probably where the weakness is and because you also know how games are made it basically allows us to talk about anything into the nitty-gritty that this channel would usually talk about and that's why i love having you on i mean and you know i i really think more and more people should be interviewing real people who make games too because half of the stuff you see online are asking, I'm sure from your perspective, very basic questions about why something isn't working. And yet no one, no one is usually around to answer them, even though there's so many people like you out there. Yeah. I also found that like, I, it was one of the reasons, like I remember I reached out years ago now to the first time I ever came on the podcast was just because there was so many things that Joe me, I love watching tech YouTube content. 100% mm -hmm. don't want to dis like disrespect any of the channels, but it drove me crazy just watching them because there's so much it's not that the information it's wrong it's like there is a layer of not explaining what's going on around it that always kind of bothered me things like the fact that we never mention like 
graphics pipelines at all in any GPU review, which mm-hmm. is, it does not make sense to me even to this day why those words don't come up. But we also don't have benchmarks that properly assess graphics pipelines. It's only what game developers see behind the scenes when they run their diod- diagnostic tools on different hardware. So they have like a level and seeing, hey, what takes up this time? What takes up this time? What does this? Which GPU is better at this or better at this? There's things there that exist that um, a lot of people, I guess, don't see or talk about. And it's what I always felt was missing from the tech space. And the places I found the closest to that was kind of like these conversations you have, mm. where I see little bits of that come sometimes on Gamers Nexus too, and they'd have David Cantor or other people on. You'd get moments where you'd see people actually talking a bit more behind the scenes, and I love that. And I think you and I share a common history. I was more of a lurker and less of a contributor on the Beyond 3D forums. Mm-hmm. During the PS3, 360, whatever era day. Which was a fantastic time to argue about specs because of how different and wonky they were. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I think that that shared history. And, you know, you go to GDC, you go talk to a lot of game developers. You do find, like, there are a lot of geniuses, but they're too low level in their mm-hmm. one function. So they're they're very good at their thing. But if you ask them about other subjects, they just don't, they don't want to process. They and rightly so, their brain's deep enough in one hole, they don't want to have to accommodate every other point of what goes into a game. So I do think that to some extent, I feel, having gone to those, talked to a lot of game developers and stuff, that I'm a bit more unique in that, I guess because I'm not doing that nitty-gritty, but I have to interact with people doing all of these things, for me, it's always like that step back that lets you kind of see a bit more of everything, which I like. All right. Now, the thing I want to start with, because it's fresh in our mind, um, is, well, yeah, let, let, yeah, let's, let's cover this first, is Intel's CES keynote, which um, I remember we were going to record Sunday, and then I was like, I think half of our discussion is going to turn into like APUs and AI and NVIDIA Super Series. And if that does happen... All of this is about to be confirmed the day yeah, after yeah. we were going to talk. And then Intel was having a show. So I was like, instead of trying to do too much at once, I'll just do a video Monday. Let's record later. But let's let's still do it after the Intel show on Tuesday in case they announce something. And I've got to say, like, I, I've never seen a bigger nothing of a show in my life. Like, Are you talking about the first one or the second one? Well, it's so weird. It's like they had several, but I I would actually make the argument the first one didn't really talk about that much that we haven't talked about a month ago about Meteor Mm. Lake. But I would say, yeah, I mean, and just give people some context. There are some insiders. I talked to two people on the phone today. Won't say where, but like these are people who's who are invested in knowing what companies are doing ahead of time uh, for various reasons and. I was talking to them like, so what do you think Intel is going to talk about today? Because, I mean, the big surprise would be if they said literally anything about Battle Mage. But if I was them, I would start talking about Arrow Lake a little bit in detail just to get people excited. Or or certainly they have to show off Granite Rapids because that's supposed to launch in the middle of this year and they need to take back server. But, I mean, Pat Gelsinger walked out and just within two minutes, I realized, oh, my God, they have nothing nothing to announce and they're just gonna like see how many times they can say pat said ai before everybody else a year ago it seemed like for about an hour or 20 minutes it it was very bizarre it it was i I don't know i know you were going to watch it after it aired but i think 
like at least in the short term it hasn't been re-uploaded yet or i but i know there's uh in the description an anantech recap i don't know if you had any thoughts about the intel keynote that we waited to record this for yeah it seemed mostly just like it seemed like intel breaking down their information for like news broadcasters that wanted key points and not really for people like us who were trying to look into what hardware is actually going to be coming out what's going to be inspirational what's going to be interesting it seems like intel is trying to in terms of mindshare position itself as an ai forefront on the cpu side we know nvidia has the gpu side of this so i guess it's the the low top application versus the high top one because you're going to have that delineation coming soon right and then all of these conversations like all of the press conferences had cloud assisted ai so you have the portion that's local and you have the portion that's in the cloud so i mean to some extent a lot of it would be done on servers and gpus anyways but we're going to start seeing more subsets of local ai applications being run and i think that they're just trying to position themselves as a part of a mind share. So when people think they're creating associations with them and that seemed like mostly what it was for. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like Nvidia came out and they're like, we're working with MIT and a thousand other companies and he- here's it running now doing yeah. things now. And AMD, I think basically said in their press conference, the desktop PCs are all going to have AMD AI engines before other people have them so look at hp look at dell look at lenovo and in my interpretation i never i didn't really get to it in my last video but my interpretation of like the first half of amd's press conference at ces was just a lot more confidence that their partners will actually be using their apus as opposed mm-hmm. to last year um and then i don't know from my perspective intel just came out today and said, we want you to think we're at the forefront, but we don't actually have anything physical to tell you about. Well, and it's it also seemed like AMD is just going to keep hitting on the CPU side. They're, they're not looking to slow down their release cadence. So mm-hmm. any slowdowns from Intel are going to be a pretty big deal. Intel is just going to keep releasing CPUs. And, you know, it might flip-flop between AM, Intel and AMD, but I think that... I think Intel has to combat that because I think the reliability that people feel used to feel with Intel is pretty shaken right now. People mm. will like, how do I word this? Um, I, I think desktop PC builders who have any experience with X570 or 370 or whatnot, and then got to cycle their CPUs and like keep upgrading them that generation that built a lot of confidence in them and yeah you know uh x670 and 670e had a bit of a rocky start in terms Mm -hmm. of some biases and things like that but i overall it's pretty stable now and they people trust that they'll be able to put whatever ryzen 9000 in there in the Mm -hmm. future without any problems and i think intel has to combat that mind share on the desktop side in mobile it's a lot of the partnerships are still standing so like laptops and stuff intel's still very successful because of those partnerships and that was the the thing that felt the strangest to me watching this conference mm. is is usually i mean it was still very the first the first conference video was still very intel partner the heavy. open house one i think it yeah, was the open was the house first one. yeah which was very partner heavy but it also wasn't as partner heavy as AMD's, which I found was kind of shocking because, mm. you know, 
they they had the five partners on stage, but the level of models and stuff that they showed seemed pretty meager compared to it, where it felt like AMD was so overburdened with things being done with their products that all they could do is relegate their name to a slide, right? And I think that's a big difference compared to previous years, where I think the mindshare is finally shifting enough that people are much more accepting of AMD, Ryzen specifically, branded hardware. Well, you know, I, I actually don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was about a month or two ago. I, I think it was like one of, yeah, no, I think, it was, yeah, I think it was like two months ago. It was like one of the last n- news episodes of Broken Silicon I put out. Um, I had a litany of quotes from people from various OEMs saying that like, we don't even want to stock Meteor Lake. This thing is a disaster. They promised us another Alder Lake moment. What we're getting is Alder Lake performance three years later, but it costs more. Like it all, it was, I was shocked because I've been someone who was very excited about Meteor Lake for years. And then one of the partners said, we want to go to AMD as soon as possible here. And Mm. it sounds like what you're saying is kind of the vibe I'm getting too. Is like, yes, Intel has laptop market share more than AMD by default right now, but it is by default. And it seems like this year, AMD at least so far, it still seems like they're on track to possibly take a decent amount of laptop a, a market share, not just obviously with Hawkpoint, but then Strix as well. And it doesn't seem like Intel has anything, again, physical they can say to sway people. There's not like they can interview Pat, like, you know, say, oh, you know, why, why do you, what do you believe in this? What, you know, what do you think about that? But they don't have any actual product to show off. And if they don't, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, it makes me wonder if they really do have anything this year. I know they talked about Lunar Lake and Arrow Lake, but they didn't say anything about the specs, really. I also, I, I think people have been, I think the partners have been a bit skeptical about AMD for a long time, not because of the production, the, not sorry, of the performance of their products, but because of competing for production at mm-hmm. TSMC, right? Like Apple, NVIDIA, AMD, and tons of other people, Qualcomm, lots of other, all of these chips are coming through TSMC and people are fighting for production there. Mm-hmm. So Intel has always been a reliable partner for them just because of volume. Like they can expect a certain amount of volume from Intel. And I think to some extent, these partners have been worrying. And this isn't the conversation you see typically in most mm-hmm. Because, like, that's not a gamer. Gamers don't care. No, but this is actually, like, half of the equation. Half the equation is, uh, yeah, if we side with AMD, let's say we have the most successful laptop. Let's say, whatever, the Zephyrus 16 is the next most successful laptop, and it actually has usable applications that use AI, whatever, right? Let's say that, and they need to produce, like, millions, tens of millions of these things. They need AMD to be able to make up that production. And I think that's been what they've been skeptical about for so long. But I... I think that's starting to change. I think AMD has a very positive relationship with TSMC. And I think that they, they built up, especially with servers and this, they're just building mindshare on every front that they possibly can gradually. Very, mm-hmm. It's been very gradual, but I think it's some, to, to some extent, it's the shift that a lot of these partners were feeling they needed before they could trust AMD mm-hmm. for, for some of their major product releases. 
And they've seen like success, like Steam Deck was a big success. It came out, it shipped yeah. more than enough units. Yeah, that probably did a lot, it went a long ways, right? Like partners saw Valve, a relatively smaller company. I know they're rich, everybody. You don't need to tell me in the comments, but you underestimate how much richer some of these other companies are mm -hmm. um, in a world of trillion dollar companies and hundreds of billions of dollar companies. But like, I think they saw this company that relatively doesn't make anything come in and do so well and they're like it's it is because they used amd I, I you know i think there's an argument to be made that until the steam deck there just hasn't been something that proved using amd for amd's sake got you anything like yes it might be 10 percent more efficient 20 30 percent more but what did it get hp what does it get dell and it got valve an entirely new platform that mm -hmm. that no and i think that was the first the first product to prove that you can get something someone else can't make without AMD. Well, I mean, consoles have been proving that for a while, right? Yeah, just the size of GPU in relation to well, the but CPU. like a company that hasn't been doing it the whole time, though. Yeah, right. I always thought that one of the the biggest strengths in all of AMD since Ryzen is the um, basically the Infinity Fabric, and whether it was it was a weakness at first but the idea was a strength because it allows them to work with partners more so to do more proprietary technologies and now intel is obviously going to be trying to progress down a similar route and so nvidia has their own versions of these things and labs i'm sure right we have the interconnected future right and more and more asics are going to be playing a huge role in what what goes into hardware and what is accelerated and AI is going to determine to some extent what needs to be accelerated. So we're going to be at an interesting cusp. I know, like, I think I scanned over a bunch of your questions and one of the mm. things that came up, I don't remember who it was from, was that, um, like, is CPUs getting uninteresting? And I think they're mm. interesting right now because there's no new paradigm shift in why they're needed. We don't care about going from 350 to 420 FPS. I'm sorry. Like, that's not something that's particularly interesting to gamers. You can play either way. But when we have new paradigm shifts come into what makes a game, how it functions, what's, what's happening asynchronously, how many tasks are happening at the same time, and what accelerators are necessary for that, that's when we're going to start seeing it. And I think we're going to see it with mobile phones oh, yeah. first. Because phones plateaued quite a bit after, like, whatever, Galaxy S2 or 3. And then people only replaced it when they wanted a better screen or better battery or camera. Or it broke. <laughs> Let's it be broke. honest. You know, it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't meeting their functional needs anymore. But when we start getting into some of these AI applications, people are going to start being interested in what phones can do. I guarantee very oh, surely. I think, yeah, I agree. I think this is something people are sleeping on. I, I, I was <clears throat> in some like investor calls on the side here. I've been talking to people about like I, Microsoft rushing out Windows 12. And I think it's because they realize that with Windows 12, if they really do implement chat GPT in its core, they actually might have something Apple doesn't have first, finally. And like this can be a selling point for Windows. But at the same time, I was telling people, if you don't think Apple is going to announce some big AI feature in the next iPhone in a, within a year or so, they're going to. And yeah. they've had these neural engines in their iPhones for years. They're going to find a way to have a smart assistant built into it from booting it up without needing the internet. And I think right now Microsoft's racing to try to be the 
first one to do that. But yeah, I think Apple within a year is going to have that ready to go. Oh yeah, 100%. And if, if not even earlier, but what's going to happen, well, one of the most interesting things I thought about from the conference was actually the co-pilot key, like mm-hmm. literally next generation laptops having a key on the keyboard to essentially communicate with an AI, which, you know, it's, I've got, there's going to be moral qualms around all of this 100%, but I think that's a major factor about what's intention, what's changing. And we don't need phones that are different because we were just web browsing and watching videos. They already mm-hmm. had accelerators in, in phones for doing that. But someone like Shopify or someone else is going to have some kind of feature that uses AI acceleration because the big things that need to fall and get better with AI acceleration are like essentially 3D modeling and um, especially... Uh, the two parts of 3D modeling, so retopologizing and then making UVs based off of everything and then projecting textures onto it. Because I guarantee when we get AI things where you have like a scan of yourself and you can just check clothes on yourself or accessories mm. and they're things. kind of there, but it's not, it's not it's perfect not yet. Perfect. Yeah. It's not perfect yet. We need to get the entire 3D art pipeline working in, and in terms of especially interpolating from photos, having enough data to know just from a photo without having to do like a LIDAR later scan or whatever on you to get a really good 3D model of yourself. And then when you're mm-hmm. shopping or your space or whatever, so when you're shopping online or you're doing these things, it's going to be some AI accelerated thing that does that. And when phones have that, and then some phones don't, and some phones do it really slow, you know, I... I, this this, point- I by the way, I want to just jump in though. I think all of this applies to laptops too. Oh, like, 100%. This is going to be a thing where... Look, if you have an RTX 3060 in your laptop, it actually has enough tops to do this, but it will be the difference between a Strix laptop having lower latency when it does it, from what I'm told, you know, and then just doing it while using two watts and not turning on the fan. And then the 3060 laptop's like turning on. In a desktop, it won't matter, but in a laptop, it will a lot, which ones can accelerate quickly with Copilot, I think. There's two points I kind of thought about that. Well, first of all, when in Intel's press conference, their first one, the the uh, the partner one, when they it took a long time once they did the AI generation of that one image in mm-hmm. the prompt when they typed the copilot, and this is where Tops comes in handy. But the other thing is that we are we aren't talking at all. The problem with the GPUs isn't that they're crazy; they're crazy good at AI. They're great at AI. The problem will be in contention of resources when doing things yes yeah. at the same time. So having a separate block on the CPU will be less in compact in competition for frame time in theory depending on how it's implemented so that might be an advantage to having some ai cpu side just because yeah you're right like a 3060 will kill whatever it's got i don't know how many tops it has probably it has at least 5x more compared to any of those apus so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure it's in the, I think it's in the hundreds, but you yeah. know, I know how dumb I sound to some people right now, like, you know, get over it. I don't, re- I don't know the number off the top of my head, yeah, but I, I can kind of compare it to what I've heard of other ones. And yeah, it's in the hundreds, I believe. But, but that would be like, that would kill your frame times if you were running that simultaneously at that speed. So the question is, you know, do they have a good ASAP, uh, asynchronous workflow for it? What kind of applications are we going to start needing? Like I can think of game applications immediately where AI could be useful. Can you imagine taking your crazy like full rendered textures that 
you've already rendered to the moon. And then you literally take like the tiniest, like 16 by 16, and then you train it to turn into the big one, right? Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden your game size goes down dramatically. You can pack your game size so far down. And then we have versions of it already where we can go from the low res texture to the big texture, but there's something better in my opinion, almost about making the big texture and then teaching it to generate the big texture again off of a low texture and then just having it as a basically a data file ready to do that and literally cutting down your 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 game size by whatever like 10 times in terms of texture memory well the memory when it goes when it gets stored in memory it's going to turn back into that size but when it's when you're downloading it'll be a much smaller game generative technology is interesting i mean i have moral qualms to some extent with it but i also know what ultimately is going to be happening. I think I can predict to some extent what's going to be happening in the future. I have fears and concerns about a lot of it, but that's, you know, I'm sure that'll come up. (laughs) Jesse here thinks she's a little warrior. Even for our family's Christmas photo, she couldn't stand still for five seconds without trying to tear her new toy in half in front of us. But for most humans, tearing things in half That's not the most relaxing thing you can do. A lot of people just want to play a game, especially one that's free, that doesn't have a bunch of ads pop up in. Well, that's a game like Royal Match. This piece of content is brought to you by Royal Match. Royal Match is a Mash 3 puzzle game in which you help King Robert build and renovate his castle through thousands of levels with over 7,000 tremendous rewards and with various elements and unique levels that keep it interesting. That is a completely free game with no ads and no internet required to play that's royal match support moore's law is dead by downloading royal match for free at the link in the description seriously just downloading that game through the description helps this channel a lot and hey maybe you'll enjoy it and relax with it and have some fun too check out royal match today well so going back to one of the things you touched on uh, in one of intel's ces press conferences where they showed off uh, you know, I think it was Meteor Lake running something, and you're like, that doesn't seem that fast. Well, the fact of the matter is, the amount of tops Meteor Lake has, and they actually have to combine basically everything in it to try to say it's faster than Phoenix, and mm-hmm. that's really not, from what I hear in practice, when it's not, it, it throttles pretty quick. It's about the same AI performance as Phoenix from a year ago, and Hawk Point's faster. Mm-hmm. Strix is going to be a lot faster. You know, they they showed off a physical Lunar Lake and then said it was coming out this year, which technically what I've leaked, re, uh, I think a few months ago, stated that, yeah, I mean, Lunar Lake may launch at the end of December 2024, but I was like, it seems like really more of a 2025 product. I think a reason they would still announce it early, even if you really can't buy it in December this year, even if it's really not launching until next year, is because what they announced was, I believe, like about three times the top's performance of Meteor Lake or something, mm-hmm. which means it's competing with Strix. And I think the reason they're announcing that is it was so weird. They said Arrow Lake. We'll have to have this go on screen or Jared put this on screen while I'm talking about it. They're like Arrow Lake first gaming processor with an AI engine, which isn't true. Phoenix has had it forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it says the higher tops performance of Lunar Lake next to it, to me, somewhat suggesting Arrow Lake may be reusing tiles from Meteor Lake Mm. and suggesting that they might be like way behind everything in AI performance until de facto 2025. That's what I got reading into it. It's like, because I was talking to people on offline about this today, like why would you announce Lunar Lake if you're ready to talk about the final specs in a release date? And it's because I think they felt they had to say they had something 
that will paper launch this year with a similar tops performance to AMD. That, that's yeah. what I believe. And we're not even including the, I don't think Strix Halo is even including the theoretical GPU performance because with that many nope. compute units, that means that thing would be an absolute monster at. So just this, the NPU and then having a GPU uh, on top of that, that my guess would be similar, like superior to the Arc GPU in. Yeah, it's it's not. I don't think it's an ideal situation for Intel in that regard. But I think that most of the people that are, uh, I got my kids sneaking in. Um, most of the people that are avoiding that that are have confidence in Intel and most of the partners and the business people and whatnot. It's going to take a long time for their opinions to shift, and it's going to take applications that are very common to them for them to notice and actually make any adjustments or be willing to purchase different hardware. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I, I want to throw this theory at you too, though, because I have a suspicion as well that the only two reasons they would announce Lunar Lake before they're like actually sure it's ready is number one, they have to say a tops number similar to AMD yeah. for this year. But number two, and, and look, I, I, I asked around today, and from what I've heard, it's not decided yet. Mm-hmm. But when they show Lunar Lake Battle Mage, they show Arrow Lake. Don't mention Battle Mage. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they're not even sure if Arrow Lake will have Battle Mage yet. And I'm almost wondering if they feel like they need a paper launch Lunar Lake this year so they can claim Battle Mage came out on time. I think they're also, well, Intel, I think they're usually pretty keen where if they have a brand they feel is unsuccessful to just drop the brand. So there's a mm-hmm. full potentiality that they're leaving those windows open so that they can completely do a brand shift if they want to at some point in time on that. Because I, I think, to some extent, I don't, I don't know if Arc is salvageable. Mm. But as a brand... It, as I, a not, brand, at a minimum, I, you think I, they should change the name. I'm not saying the technology is not salvageable. I think that it's possible that they can come up with a technology that, from the Arc technology that's really amazing. I just think that they probably will rebrand it and they'll disassociate from Arc and have some other name for it. So that's kind of like why I think they might keep it off of the slides for a bit because they are getting feedback from their partners and their partners are their bread and butter. So if their partners are saying, please don't put the ARC logo on these devices, I've heard that primarily from your podcast. Mm -hmm. So, but if they are getting that information from partners, then they would be very keen to change brands on that as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess let me throw this question in here before we move on to other types of hardware discussions. Clean Sweep writes in and says, out of the big three, AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel, who had the best AI messaging from a developer and consumer perspective and what AI-related text shown at CES has picked, piqued your interest the most? Hmm. I think NVIDIA is showing their continued dominance hmm. in this field. And I think that there's theirs was good enough that they're not necessarily worried at all. And I think that people that invested in big, big platforms with NVIDIA, you know, huge A100s or whatever, like buying lots of NVIDIA GPU real estate and investing in it felt reassured in that. And that's a very critical thing for them to maintain their user base. I think the like I think the the last AI guest you had on the mm. developer the last new guest well I guess David was the last guest but the second to last guest of last year yeah yeah so that guest specifically was saying that uh, you know some of the memory 
issues was providing providing an opportunity because people were and I, I think i said this in one of the other talks that i had with you is that when there's a new paradigm shift in terms of technology people will be more willing to pivot away and to some extent nvidia soured some relationships with people in ways where there would be a group of people that need good enough hardware they need to trust the hardware enough to pivot but there is an opportunity for AMD to take a good portion of market share and to ha have a software ecosystem. This isn't CUDA versus OpenCL, where it was like three or four years later and everything's established. Everything's mm. still getting up and running now. And there's opportunities for other players to come into the game. So I think both NVIDIA's and AMD's were strong. I think NVIDIA is going to keep the big people in this. But I think what NVIDIA might lose, actually, is the small people who become big people. Mm. So where AMD has an advantage potentially is that they're giving people lots of memory. They even announced what like was 7600 with 16 gigs of memory. They're they're throwing memory around in places where it could be useful for people with smaller operations. They have good hardware for that to some extent and I think people with startups, with small applications and that are trying to do things, we don't know where the next Facebook or Shopify or whatever is going to come from, and it might be built on AMD, and then that might end up having some proprietary tech that's focusing on accelerating on them, and they might scale up in AMD, and NVIDIA may have a bigger competitor than they realize. But that's a lot of ifs. Mm. It, and that's the advantage of some open systems versus... Like, NVIDIA has created the best closed system, most, like... Not completely closed, but you know you can't completely lift the curtains behind the scenes to see what's going on. System that does really well; it's amazing at what it does. But you know, AMD's been much more open with their approach, so they're going to attract some people that need that openness. And in a window with a lot of innovation happening, that's typically where you see most people taking advantage of that. Well, I think also something people might be sleeping on is, well, NVIDIA, man, they just hit several home runs when it comes to timing for training, right? Having the hardware to train things. But a lot of people are saying once that's trained, I mean, like, we trained it. Now we need to run it on devices. And AMD might be timing it perfectly to have all of the AI laptops out there and ready to go right when the apps are built, right? Yeah. And that's the other boat you don't want to miss that seems like AMD might be able to hit uh, pretty well. But, you know, I actually want to bring up something because you brought up the 7600 XT 16 gigabyte. And that AI guest you also mentioned said that one of the easiest things Intel could do to maybe try to get some more support is just start giving people 16 gigabyte cards for cheap. And then AMD just announced the 7600 XT 16 gigabyte that is going to be $330. And I've been wondering if with RDNA 4, they'll launch a 32 gigabyte card for a reasonable price. Yeah. It, will NVIDIA do something like this? Well, they have a lot of reasons not to because they want you to buy their $5,000 card. But AMD can only go up. So they might as well just give everything next year 16 gigabytes or more and just, okay, whatever. If it competes with your professional line, whatever. At least you're taking market share. The other thing too is that currently we're filling, we're facing a hole Nvidia thought it was going to fill in these years. So this mm. is a chasm that Nvidia thought it was going to solve that is going to be a weakness. And what I'm referring to is the failed ARM acquisition. So mm. Nvidia knew that there was going to be some applications that were going to be necessary in using acceleration, whether it was for 
crypto or AI or whatever, NFTs, whatever they thought it was for, they wanted, because I think NVIDIA's goal, and rightly so, and why they've been such a dominant force, is they want to be on the edge of compute. So the second mm-hmm. they see anyone in need of a new algorithm, they're going to be the first one to have an accelerator with it built for it. And at a really good scale and a big hardware so that anyone, if MIT comes knocking on the door, they want to hear about that first. So they have that accelerator ready for whatever that crazy new computer pirate paradigm is. And NVIDIA has been absolutely amazing for this. But some things do need to be done on CPU side for some applications. And NVIDIA was hoping to be mm-hmm. in ownership of ARM right now so that it could start to close that so they thought right now they would already have ownership of arm and then they would be pushing this angle from that that's my guess and that acquisition loss really hurt them because while i'm still a partner they don't have it and nvidia really likes to own what they play with Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and so i'm not I think there's really a few things NVIDIA is hoping to do soon. I think they are just crossing their fingers that AXG at Intel will fall apart and that they can go to Intel and say, graphics and AI tile, just let us make you the tile, Intel, and put it on Nova Lake or something. I've actually heard people at NVIDIA I talked to directly suggest to me they want that to happen. But they're not going to go forward with that unless they feel Intel is like, three generations behind and can never catch up because they don't want Intel to possibly steal some of their stuff. So like, or even ideas from using their stuff. Well, they have to show it early to get it in the designs. So like they have to be more open and sharing and then it'd be more awareness cross company. So they, I think NVIDIA is kind of waiting for Intel to become even weaker. So NVIDIA can swoop in and assist them without having to worry about competing with them directly. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us perfectly to start talking about the um, AMD's 8000G series, which I just really haven't had time to talk about yet. Uh, one of the announcements at CES, and it was interesting how AMD was like the 8700G, you know, 8 Zen 4 core is 1650 gaming performance built in and an NPU on desktop. I'm curious how much you think that really matters on desktop yet and if you could see an awkward situation where i'm going to just hazard a guess that zen 6 in late 2025 will have an npu on all platforms will be whatever um but zen 5 i still hear is up in the air could you see a situation where like someone's building a desktop pc let's say late this year and let's mm-hmm. hypothetically they can get the strix apu with 12 Zen 5 cores, some of them, they're clocked lower, but they're 12 Zen 5 cores, and it has an MPU that's 50 tops, or they can get the, I don't know what, it, let's say 8900X, which is 12 cores that hit 5.7 gigahertz instead of 5 gigahertz, but there's no NPU. Mm. Do you think that will really matter yet? on de- It matters on laptop for efficiency reasons, but on, on desktop, how much do you think that actually matters to say there's an NPU in it? And could it matter enough that you see gamers actually choosing the APU over the desktop-focused uh, CPU? It's not going to matter in, in the application barrage that we're going to get. We're going to get two years of application barrage. It's, it's going to matter, like I said before, only when games implement these things or when we have... We're, we're going to start to see weird things, I guarantee. We're going to start to see movies that are rendered more real-time than mm. previously, and then we're going to see acceleration in that. And then it could be a thing where there's a step at the beginning where some aspect of an entire 
movie that was rendered in CG basically, but runs in UE5. And then you're, but there's a step in it where it uses some AI generation. And because it's rendering in real time, they'd be able to do that. Like we're, we're starting to see the points where things will converge and we're not there yet. And I don't know how many years it will be. I don't know if it's the 5090 or the 6090. It'll be something where basically what happens is, is that we'll have a version of super sampling that will look good enough or better than what native rasterization is. And, or there will be a version of, um, yeah, there'll be a bunch of hardware paradigm shifts. There'll be extra performance increases. And then we're basically going to have movies rendering in Unreal 5. Like, I mean, Mandalorian was basically done in that already. We're going to have that. It's going to, there could be a local version that if you have a strong enough laptop, you can actually run the dynamic version of the movie and it'll be a little different or something. Yeah. We're going to have weird things like this coming. But you think that's years away. You don't think anyone's going to have to decide on AM five short term. You think by the time it's really a thing, they're all going to have it probably. I think so. But I think there will be people that are still using AM five that might regret it, but this is a years down the road thing. I think it always comes down to the early adopter versus waiting. Cause maybe if they save out and they bought AM five, they're happy with it. They don't really care. Right. But then whatever down the road, now they can buy the better version of it cheaper when they have better accelerators on it. Like, does anyone really exactly? And you can sell your old one, whatever. Did anyone running a 1080 TI for an extra three years really regret not buying a 2080 Ti, like yeah, they got way better ray tracing performance on either the 30 series or the 40 series. So if they waited one generations or two generations to dip in, they weren't playing Battlefield sure at 30 FPS with ray tracing on. But <laughs> where you see the squares change in front of you as you're walking is like there's only like a 20 foot view distance in uh, one of the Japanese maps in the river, and you can literally see the squares illuminating as you walk back and forth in front of you. It looks yeah. Terrible. It looks. It looked terrible. I don't think you missed anything. <laughs> no, I mean, Nvidia was showing a lot of. It, it looked weird. Like they had that demo where they had the bar scene and all of that. And yeah, it's all generative. It did not feel natural or anything. Yet it felt pretty strange. And I think that the realism of the models made it feel even stranger. I actually yeah. think if they would have went more stylized with it, they could have gotten a lot more forgiveness on some of the behaviors and mannerisms. But it's. It is what it is. I think that the weirdest thing I'm, I'm seeing in all of that is because like NVIDIA revealed their pipeline for how they were doing generative AI. And one of the steps was, you know, hear speech. The next step was make text from speech, right? And then I'm like, how is that going to capture all of the mannerisms and text? Because we know communicating face-to-face versus communicating in text, mm. you're going to be misunderstood oh, yeah. five times more often communicating in text and statements can be taken in different ways than you intend just because people don't get the mannerisms or the little ways that you twist words at the emphasis on them. And if it's being converted to text before it's being fed into a PC, it would have to have like a lot of notation between the text, well, slightly raised at this or this or that to, you know, it was, um, I never knew if I was going to have a chance to bring up this point, but you know, it stuck out to me during the NVIDIA press conference that I was like, this is a failure. They're showing this off and this isn't working properly was that, what did they say? Cyberpunk inspired conversation thing at a bar they had where they're like, watch how she has a different response every time. And I was like, what? That's not good. She doesn't just have like, oh, I walked down the street and took a left versus I took a left after walking down the street. She was saying 
entirely different yeah, yeah, yeah. thoughts on the issue. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what a human does. If you ask me the same question yeah, yeah. 10 different days, I'll probably give you a similar answer in different wording, maybe with a different spin to it. I'm not going to fundamentally think about something different. That's not what, that's not how humans work. And that I was like, you guys understand this just means the AI isn't working. If it's not saying a similar thing every time, because that's not how people certainly not how a game you would want to play would work. You know, they've, they've been good at kind of opening the minds of people and giving them ideas of what theoretically is possible because all of us now, I mean, the, the exponential progress in our lives alone know that five years down the road, it'll be better and more like that. Like I think of the, what is it? The, the 3d mark demo of the tree. The first time I saw that as a kid, like around max pain release, kind of, I was blown away. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. Trees will look like this. Now every tree looks way better than that tree. Well, to bring things back to the APU thing, I want to ask about a different aspect of Strix and it's not, the AI, but it is AMD's main APU within half a year is going to have 12 full cores, 24 threads, and 16 RDNA 3.5 compute units. And I'm not even talking about Strix Halo that comes out after. I'm talking about the basic Strix point. From what I'm seeing, and like some of this is a little old, but at least the old presentations I looked like suggested AMD is comparing this to a 3050 mobile. Now, what does that mean? It was the same specs as a 3050 on desktop, but they were saying around the 45 watt models. So not even quite max Q, but like 45 watt 3050, which is actually pretty close to a 1070. Um, You're saying imper- 16 compute units. So is it 64 shaders per that? So we're talking like 1024. Shaders yeah, on an and RDNA 3.5, probably hitting close to 3 gigahertz, mm-hmm. around 1070 performance. I'm just curious how important do you think that could be or how exciting, well, just generally, if you find that level of performance in an APU exciting, but also, it, this isn't the Halo one. This isn't the super, super expensive one. I'm sure they'll try to charge for it at first, but long term, this is the basic graphics they're going to be including mm-hmm. is, I mean, I'm just trying, it's stronger than a series S it's, it's like, this is 1080p comfortable gaming in 1440p low in current, and medium current in games. some games. Yeah, yeah. In current games. It's interesting. I think it is interesting. I think this is what everyone was hoping, hoping for. Like, I think we're finally getting the products we were hoping for when AMD bought ATI. Yeah. Like we were imagining things. And the, the worst thing about it is that they proved they could exist pretty early on with mm. PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. Like we know that these, and PS4 Pro and so on, we knew that they could do a complete chip with all of this inside. I think they were waiting for it to be small enough to be economical. They wanted to make sure that they could make it small enough to fit in the socket. They didn't have to build a custom socket for it each time. Right? Mm. There's specific things that they... Yeah, because the first ones did have their own socket on yeah, desktop. They would like, yeah, exactly. So if instead they were kind of hoping that they could do it unilaterally and then have the CPU component be small enough that they could fit as much GPU as humanly possible, but they've had the, the potential for this for a long time. I think that what obviously it opens up is thin and lights. It opens up handheld applications. Like this paradigm shift is what allowed things like the ROG Alley and the Steam Deck and all of these mm-hmm. things to exist. And it's going to be much more interesting in those spaces. Is it going to kill the low end GPUs? Probably and laptops. And that's a big advantage. I think, I think the thing AMD has been hoping for for a long time as they've been bolstering the Radeon um, driver set and whatnot, because I think that they, they released 
pretty good hardware at the 5700 XT, but I think the black screens and all of that gave them a worse black eye than they were hoping for. But they have a lot of people that buy laptops with Ryzen. Mm-hmm. And I, my experiences with Ryzen versus Intel laptops, because I get laptops pretty regularly, is that, man, when I went from an Intel 11 series to a Ryzen 5900, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it was like better performance on the 5900 and it was way cooler. That Intel laptop cooked my lap and overheated so bad. It was a razor and it was a beautiful laptop and it had a 2080 super and it. it was a good, it ran well, but man, did it get crazy hot. Like That's one thing I've noticed about my brother's Phoenix laptop that I got him a few months ago is um, it, it just, it's so snappy and it doesn't, and it's like, duh. I mean, like if you're comparing this to 14 nanometer stuff, like, of course it's cooler, but yeah. it, no, but it's, it, it, it just, it's something about when it gets hot seems less random. Yeah. Oh my sense. gosh. No, no, it's exactly that. I would be in like a web browser and then all of a sudden it starts heating up like crazy. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I opened it up. I redid the thermal paste. I checked that, like <laughs> I did everything to that, that laptop and I still I couldn't get it to run more regularly and cooler. But I, I think this is where all of this comes to a, a head, right? Is that we now we're going to have pretty robust hardware where mm-hmm. like you'll be able to play at the baseline, at right? the baseline. And, you know, that will throw away. You can play 80% of the entire history of video games on this, right? So it's like, yeah, do you cut yourself? Well, probably 99%, but probably in the latest games, you can probably play almost all of them and play them well, yeah. right? It's not like, I, I man, people have got to, I, I made this point in a podcast recently, go back and look at what people used to call APU gaming as playable. It was like 720p, 28 hertz, and they're like, oh my god, I don't have a graphics card. And now people are like, ah, Phoenix is only running Starfield and 900p 60 locked or at 80 frames per second. It's like, this is so much more playable than it ever used to be. Oh, yeah. And it it seems like AMD is about to boost that performance by about 50% again. I think it's to get you right to that level where it is comfortable to play. Well, and very I, comfortable. I think the like the super intense hardcore gamers are still like on laptops might be drawn to Intel for the the highest end SKUs. But I think what AMD is hoping will happen is that more and more average people pick up a laptop. And before when they picked up like an AMD A8 Acer, and mm-hmm. then they were like, I hate this thing. It drives me crazy for this reason and that reason, right? Versus now you pick up a Ryzen laptop and you're like, oh, wow. And then you mm-hmm. play like a bit of Fortnite on you're like, oh, it ran it and it ran it pretty well. Like, I think they're hoping to especially turn around Radeon's brand reputation by having yeah, stable drivers. Several years of people buying laptops that Trojan horse for having an AMD graphics card. And then they go, you know, I've had that AMD laptop for a while. Maybe now I'll buy RDNA 5. I, I do think that's their plan this year and why they canceled top RDNA 4 is they realized this is how you change the perception. It's a lose. It's maybe not losing, but it's like way less efficient to try to take NVIDIA head on and always be perfect than it is to just make good laptops people buy for a couple of years that no one can touch and then say, also, we make graphics cards, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, I don't know. I, I have, I played around a lot with the 4090 and the 7900 XTX. And honestly, because my 4090 died on me twice. 
And then they sent it back to me and it had... Oh, I've heard a lot of 4090s have failure issues. I was actually told by someone that my MSI Supreme is like one of the only ones that doesn't actually. Yeah, so they sent it back to me and it was 15% less powerful. So whatever happened in the voltage of it dropped its clocks or it's like basically how where it was on the voltage curve was yeah. aged so Their severely fix was just that. <laughs> and then when I got it back, so it worked for two weeks and then it died again and then they replaced it. So that one's been going much better. But the, during that time I had to game exclusively on the 7900 XDX. And other than Alan Wake two, I could barely even perceive the difference between those two GPUs. Yes. Alan Wake two with ray tracing on, I was like, Oh dang, I want my 4090 back for this specifically. But when I was playing whatever Exoprimal or Halo with friends, I'm like, perceptually, I can barely tell the difference between these GPUs. And I think AMD needs more opportunities like that to win mindshare with people. Got any 2024 New Year's resolutions? Well, my girlfriend's cat does, trying to jump around in as much loose wrapping paper as he can. And my dog, Jesse. Well, her New Year's resolution is to watch him do that as much as possible for some reason. But for many of us humans, New Year's resolutions usually involve trying to learn a new skill or improve our health while staying happy. And, well, Vite Ramen can help you do that last one. This piece of content is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers tons of options for eating healthy, like their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice, or also their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break, or their new Nano Boost Vitality Powder that I honestly think tastes fantastic and is a great way to get a tasty burst of energy later in the day without cranking yourself up on that third or fourth or fifth, really, cup of coffee that you know you shouldn't be drinking if you want to go to bed at a reasonable time. Seriously, their Vitality Powder, it actually does taste very, very good. I've been enjoying it quite a bit. And for all of their products, whether it's kitchenware, uh, powders, or their ramen, of course, click on the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on all of their fantastic products. They really are a great rapidly growing american startup that's been very good to the moore's law is dead team over the past few years and well due to us actually liking their products and liking them they've been good to us so supporting them supports me and even just clicking on the link in the description makes a big difference as well but i really do like their products and recommend them so check out vite ramen today well so we're, we're talking about graphics cards actually then let me pivot to this question here so I, I checked because I was like, I don't remember talking to Brian last time about what's going on with RDNA 4, but wasn't that about when? And yeah, it was a week before it came out that AMD was canceling top RDNA 4, which I put out that exclusive leak of like what it even looked like, which was, I, I don't even remember at the top of it, it's like 12 tiles or something and it looks really expensive, really powerful. But at this point, it sounds like what they're focusing on is something that's going to cost between $400 and $600. That's, you know, pro a mid-range die. By that, I mean probably 200 to 350 millimeters squared. Mm. Probably 16 gigs of RAM. Hoping for around 4080 performance. So it's not going to be a 4090 killer nor a 5090 competitor. But it, it could be something that brings 40, at the best case scenario, I think would be like 4080 super performance to half the price later this year. Um, I'm wondering what you think about AMD's decision to cancel top RDNA 4 and 
if you really care that they did that at all. I care. I like big hardware. That's just a, a me thing. I like all big hardware. I like to run benchmarks on it. I, I like. I went through the entire 3D Mark suite on the mm-hmm. 7900 XTX, and to do even like every every API overhead test, all the tests, you know, variable rate shading, everything, just see how these architectures compare. I like big hardware that could, in theory, be competitive for that. Mm-hmm. So, to some extent, I don't love that they're doing it i understand why entirely because they've realized i think the last couple of generations that even if they can make the hardware that is actually pretty competitive in that stance they have a very hard time commanding the same price points so why not focus on the 5070 and just actually make something really competitive with the 5070 at a good price point and then build mindshare with people and and yeah, they won't get people high end. And I think that they're relaying because I think they found success in terms of sales volume with both the RX 480 and with the 5700 XT. They mm-hmm. did pretty decent sales volume with both of those cards. And I and I, I think the 6000 series is probably selling reasonably well now. I don't know the numbers or anything like mm-hmm. that, but it's they need that mind share. So I think they're going like target mid, hit the 5070 hard. And I show where we're actually gaining ground in terms of competition. They're obviously working with Sony on the PS5 Pro, mm-hmm. right? We're going to start seeing like whatever FSR 4 or some other thing coming out that'll be better than what we currently have. Probably some new tech that they're aiming to do as well. And then hopefully, finally, something new before they copy NVIDIA. <laughs> and it looks like they've separated out the ray tracing in RDNA 4. So it's not as contentious for resources. So maybe to be more competitive with NVIDIA. So it makes more sense to hit them with, and it would be like really good if they ended up winning that midpoint. I would be sad personally because if I was to pick up one, I probably would have gotten whatever an 8900 XTX or something like that. But so I, I'm usually not as interested in buying the mid range unless it turns out my wife or the arcade machine needs a, a bigger mm. GPU in it. But you know, typically that's it's less exciting for me. I, I would make me probably be more invested in the 5070 because I always like to see where all competition lies because hardware differences are kind of the beauty of it. And I think to some extent, like we see this with consoles and whatnot, but where the hardware is so identical, right? Then there isn't really a difference between Xbox and PlayStation games compared to what used to be like oh, PS3 yeah. and whatnot. Like PS3 and 360 were night and day different. You had on the PS3, you had a set number of uh, pixel shaders and vertex shaders, whereas on the Xbox 360, you had unified shaders, which makes you build the game completely differently. One of my favorite goofy examples um, was I read online for Battlefield 3, the PS3 had MSAA. And I believe the Xbox 360 version didn't because they could run it on some of the, I think it's the SPEs on the cell. But also the PlayStation 3 version technically ran at 704p and they had almost indiscernible little black lines at the top, <laughs> uh, at the sides, because they had to perfectly fit in this one buffer. And they're like, if we run it at 1% lower resolution, no one will notice. And then we can have MSAA and then it'll hit 30 frames per second. And like just bizarre differences between the, the consoles like that. I love on the PS3 too, you had like a bunch of game devs that like built really innovative scaling technologies where they just cut resolution on one axis and hope people don't notice really rectangular pixels. Yeah. And it's just funny things like that, that, that game developers did trying to get more performance out of 
what the hardware was. But I, I think in general, I guess what I was trying to say with this is that, you know, it's always good to have not just one approach to how hardware is done so that people can learn from each other. There's different types of implementations, right? And I, to some extent, would be sad to see any of that leave the market. I like to see the full hardware stack. And I know that people argue that, you know, I mean, I think competition is almost always better, but I do think that the mindshare NVIDIA has hasn't allowed competition to do what competition would do. Should do. Like, people should be choosing the 6700 XT over the 3070 if all you're doing is gaming. It's cheaper and has more RAM. I mean, let me, let me ask this question. Compressed Earthblocks writes in and says, Brian, what is your ideal RDNA 4 lineup? Tom is letting us know we're essentially getting Navi 31 levels of performance for the mid-range. What do you think this should look like? And if that's all we're getting performance-wise, do you want to see a bigger push for ray tracing features or VRAM with this lineup? I know, I know they're pushing for ray tracing, and I'm hoping they're using their partnerships to accelerate how quick they're doing it. Because NVIDIA is obviously ahead on this front, but AMD has big partners. They work mm-hmm. with Sony. They work with Microsoft a lot. They have engineers from both. Now they would also be working with Steam. They'd have engineers mm. accessible on all of these stunts. Those are, those are big partners to have. And Sony has really good engineers. So there, to some extent, there's a chance that they could be doing a lot more acceleration in their next run. And it, it seems like the PS5 Pro is architected with a lot of these changes in mind from some of the stats that I'm reading. That mm-hmm. Sony had some really specific requests based on what they like about the PS5. And then AMD has had to work with their engineers to meet it. And we will see those innovations eventually come into graphics hardware. So I think a bigger push for ray tracing. Ray tracing is not going away. It's not implemented perfectly yet, but global illumination via path tracing is what's eventually going to be the standard and all hardware will have the amount of performance to do it. And hopefully, hopefully it just eventually is like less than four milliseconds of frame time. Hopefully and I think there was another reader mail about this, but I would say the one from what I'm hearing, RDNA 5 is likely when they double down on ray tracing. So to say RDNA 4 won't be better at it, of course it will. And it'll probably focus on it in more of a way than RDNA 3 did. Unless RDNA 3 just dropped the ball, maybe it did, but RDNA 3 really didn't bring us, it didn't close the gap with ray tracing to NVIDIA. It, the gap's widened. Yeah. Maybe the gap will close a little with RDNA 4. So I'm not saying it's not going to be a bigger focus with RDNA 4 than it was 3. But from what I hear, RDNA 5 is when they actually might try to win. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to try to win until they're like ready to win. And they think it like benefits them as much as putting the money into other things. Because anytime they worry about ray tracing as much, they have to worry about die space for the parts of the card that do the ray tracing, mm-hmm. which means they're going to have to charge the same price as NVIDIA instead of utter undercutting them. And they know they don't have the mind share to price their things the same as NVIDIA yet. Well, so I think right. that's also a factor there. That's why they're plotting uh, like a two-year mind share turnaround almost like they did mm-hmm. with Ryan. That's my guess. It seems like that. I think by, by building up mind share, by taking, if they kill the mobile GPU mm-hmm. mid to bo- low range, if if they're whatever, you get a Strix Halo laptop and you're getting 30, 70 performance in there, that's going to kill a lot of the mid to low range GPUs in laptops. It's going to be a very efficient machine that does really good things. And most people that buy it that just want a laptop to work on that also game occasionally are going to be really happy with it and surprisingly impressed. And then they'll find that 
because AMD's put a lot of work into their driver stability in the last year or two. I've noticed it mm-hmm. since having a, a 5700 XT and having like a 3090 and 4090 and uh, 7900 XT, X, that there was a huge performance stability difference between yeah, the Yeah, since that black screen thing that happened with like Vega and the 5700 XT right around there, mm-hmm. since then, like a year after that and until now, I haven't seen any driver issues really with AMD or NVIDIA pretty much. Yes, they pop up here and there. I'm not saying they don't, but I, yeah, I haven't seen them. And I've, I use both, uh, if not every day, every week. So. so I think that they realize that their software is getting into a better place and laptops are the best place to do it. They have two years to ramp up Mindshare to build a really big product and hopefully have something new paradigm-wise on their hands like they did, like working with Sony, working with... Some of these innovations, I mean, those talk about new upscalers. I know you had a question about upscalers in your con- in the, the script. One of the things that I would going to say is rasterization or just outputting to pixels has never been perfect. Like a mm. photo using the oh, same amount point. of... A photo using uh, the exact same number of pixels as a game rendering the same number of pixels looks way better. And the reason... It could be almost the exact same content. The reason is just that when you render to pixels, you're containing everything within a square, right? Without taking the gradations and variations of all the colors that exist and in between well, it when you capture the and photo. And I saw some reader mails, even some that I cut for time um, or for making sure the script, I should say, wasn't like 20 pages long. But like talking about how some newer games have blurry looks if you don't use DLSS or FSR, I think people need to go back and play old games without MSAA on. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, I mean, image quality was garbage. Uh, I'm sorry, people. Like, everything shimmered. Everything looked blocky. You needed to use, like, super sampling times four to not have a blurry image in the distance. Like, and and so that's not to say that some devs haven't gotten late lazy with some ways they render things without DLSS, or that some games benefit more from DLSS or FSR simply because the overall image quality without it doesn't look very good. But I will say, if you go back in time, there are a lot of games that they weren't perfect no. <laughs> all the time back then either. No, I, when we started seeing TAA, it was such a big innovation. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we, we had to move away from MSAA when we went to deferred shading. MSAA is just basically like a huge, uh, go, the, what is it, bicubic sample. Just goes up four times and then down four times with each frame. And then you get slight blurring that happens to all those pixels. And then we went to FXAA, which was like a CPU algorithm, which tried to find edges and just blur them to try to deal with the harshness of a, a frame render. Because the harshest, every frame that comes in, it's just at your resolution, it's going to be harsh because it's just pixels. And global illumination will help to some extent with that because it will start creating the gradations in the content that it wouldn't create separately. But if you have a line, like a telephone pole wire running from that, you you also get a lot of, um, what is it, sub-pixel breakup. So when something's smaller than a pixel, right, then all of that information is really, really hard. So to some extent, we need these algorithms to perfect games, because but they're not ready yet. We're using like early versions mm-hmm. of all of these, FSR, DLSS, XESS, TSR, whatever it is. These are early versions. Now they're upsampling. We need them even if you were native to some extent to get the image quality to the next level because we we need to clean up the harshness of all of our pixels. And we want to do it while preserving texture detail and the things that are supposed to be detailed. So these things have to be really smart and really functional. 
But, you know, we're just at the start of this. They went from being garbage at the first iterations mm. of FSR1 and DLSS1 to being reasonable now. You know, some people have gripes with them. Some people don't like the fizzling or the haloing or the artifacting. These things will get better as, as it goes. The algorithms will continue to improve. The approaches will continue to improve. How we accelerate them will improve. And like that's what I think was leaked in the PS5 Pro is that it has an accelerator. Well, I want to pivot to that next. But before I do, I do want to round out this conversation we have by saying <laughs> my ideal RDNA 4 lineup would honestly be like, you know, just, just give me like a five. And I'm just trying to be reasonable. Obviously, I wish this was all free. $550 card with 16 gigabytes. It can even be 600. And if it matches the 4080 Super, and they have some FSR 3.5 to go with it that can get closer to DLSS. That I want to see that at 550 or 600 with 16 gigabytes, 4080 Super, the cutdown version. I don't think they should have given the 7700 XT 12 gigabytes. Keep it to 16 gigabytes, AMD. Give me that for like 450 or something, and then so on and so forth. So what would that be like 4070 Ti for 450 and down the stack? And then I would hope they overclock a model and give it 32 gigabytes for like 750 because I think there's a lot of AMD faithfuls that would upgrade to a 32 gigabyte card if it still wasn't like 5080, but it was, you know, if it was almost 5070 Ti, but it had 32 gigs of RAM instead of 16 or something, like a lot of people would buy that for the same price and a lot of people would buy it for AI. So that's the lineup. I'm hoping AMD implements. And by the way, for the love of God, AMD, can you please give us some reasonably priced 16 gigabyte laptop graphics cards? Because it's a nightmare out there right now trying to get a laptop that can run anything that I need it to run professionally. Yeah. Yeah. The memory is a big thing in that. I was going to say right away is like on the, if, if they want me to have a, an excuse to buy a, the, the 8,000 series Radeon, even if it's only a 5070 competitor, put lots of ram on it because i I, it, I would if they put 32 gigs of ram on that i would try to find a computer to put it in somewhere i whether it's a friend's or mine or something there would be a computer somewhere around where i'm like i want to see this card in action let's, let's and they could it. find remote scenarios where it matters already whether it's a jedi game where you can max out 24 gigabytes yeah like this is a thing where they could go you know they are whatever it is right 5070 ti is $800. It only has 16 gigabytes. Ours is 32 gigabytes for 750. And, you know, it's a little weaker, but it is also a little cheaper. It has double the RAM. I think that's a compelling argument people would like, as long as along with that, they have a new version of FSR to go with it. Mm. Agreed. Um, but right, you were talking about the PlayStation 5 Pro. Um, I did want to talk to you specifically about that because I'm sure this is a, something... That I really can't talk to that many people about like the decisions Sony would have made. So the the rumors swirling around, and some of these have been swirling around for a while. But from my perspective, I've seen enough of them now, including from people that I don't think are full of shit. That doesn't conflict with things I've heard from people I trust to go. This seems to be real. It seems like Sony's maybe making a four point four gigahertz, uh, four nanometer version of Zen two. Less than 60 CU, so who knows how many they disable. Um, RDNA 3.75, whatever it is. It's a custom mm-hmm. RDNA card with the newest stuff. Uh, and a dedicated NPU for upscaling. And still just 16 gigabytes of 18 gigabit per second GDDR6. My take on this is, and especially after talking to someone at a graphics card manufacturer, but like 
what this would be aiming to do. They were like, well, what if they don't want any higher resolution? What if they just want to say same settings, same programming, but now it runs 50% to 100% higher frames per second? Like you don't yeah, need to change any rate. of the assets. Like, because clearly no one's asking for higher resolution from the console right now. So, and then if you do, you know, they have an NPU that can upscale it to more native looking 4K or something. So, get some 240 hertz games out there. Yeah. Well, I don't think so. But now, <laughs> I think 120 hertz could be comfortable in more of them, though. But like, I'm wondering what you thought about those rumors. Yeah. Well, that's, I think I referred to it a couple of times. I think the MPU is interesting. I like, like I said earlier, these partnerships are a big deal for AMD, right? And they're probably one of the biggest competitive advantages they have versus other vendors is that they deal with a lot of people making games. So, and NVIDIA does great on this on the PC side. They reach out to game devs all the time. They, they talk to you, they ask questions, they you know, ask if you need any engineering support on integrating any of their stuff. But AMD has people making things with their games targeted ever since PS4. So we have, we have a lot of people looking at what's interesting in their hardware from a game developer's standpoint, and then they're giving that feedback back. So if there's an MPU in there, it's because they're asking for it. If it's mm. if there's a, like a separated part of the pipeline for ray tracing, they're asking for it. And I think you know, you and I talked a bit offline about this. Whether and my thoughts were immediately: you can keep the existing modes, and you can either mm-hmm. change the resolution targets, or you can do it, and you can or you can give them both. You can keep the existing modes. And then you can keep the, the resolution targets and double the frame rate, or you can increase the resolution targets. And but then e- you need better textures and assets, and the you really want to notice it with a better resolution. The advantage, I'm guessing, PlayStation 5 has in comparison to a lot of other things is I, I, my guess is the flags are already in place. I haven't, we haven't ported to PS5 mm. yet, so... And what I mean by that is this, when they're developing the game, they set flags up for different things. But now on the PS5, on the PS4, if you had a performance mode or whatnot, it was in the game menus. But now what you have on the PS5 is in the game and in the system menu, you can select whether a game boots to prefer performance or boots to prefer uh, visuals, right? And then all it really takes is another ray tracing one in there in the mix as well. And then they don't have to, the devs will have to do way less work Mm -hmm. because the flags are in place and Sony can just literally put more powerful hardware in the way, tick them themselves, and then see what happens. Make changes at their, their graphics API level and say, hey, render it 2x res, do this do that and they would have those options and then they they could in theory split off each of those modes to be you could take the ultra their regular performance from ps uh four five and then you can make an ultra performance or you can do the same performance mode but higher resolution they would have that split available whether they want to interject at the api level and double resolution or whether they want to keep the resolution and double frame rate so there's some playful options that in theory that they could have at their doorstep and obviously what they want right because upscaling is get to be such a big thing and game mm-hmm. developers like i i think i've talked to you offline about this too but we're seeing a huge split and a huge split in terms of what graphics card you need for certain resolutions based on whether it's a single player or multiplayer game right you will have a new multiplayer game release and it'll run at 240 fps on whatever for this graphics card but then alan wake 2 releases and that same graphics card plays it at 40 fps right mm-hmm. there's 
there's going to be a huge difference between the single player and multiplayer games moving forward. And it's going to be harder to provide these arguments where you say this is a this tier GPU, this is this tier GPU, because the games are going to vary so much in terms of what performance they need. And like Rocket League isn't the whatever sequel to whatever Rocket League isn't going to need that crazy level of hardware, but we're going to keep seeing more games. And we're seeing the engines, I think three, I don't know, three or four Moore's Lods is dead ago where I was on it. Um, I talked about how the engines need to catch up. And mm. UE5 was one of the first engines that implemented this kind of, I mean, in theory, the idea is basically a, 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 a polygon per pixel with Nanite, right? But now we're, and I talked about mesh shaders back then too, and how mesh shaders can be paradigm changing, but the problem is that they need to be integrated into engines. And we're starting to see that. So Alan Wake 2, I mean, those developers had an option at their hand. They could have kept geometry the same as a lot of other games out there, right? And, and had ridiculously good performance, but instead they went absolutely to the moon. Don't you geometry. think they should have had a 40 hertz mode on console? I think that's so absurd that they didn't offer that. Yeah. Like, because they had to compromise so much. I haven't played Alan Wake on any platform, but I've I've read online like the low resolutions they had to go to to hit 60, and I can't help but thinking, this isn't a fast-paced game. Why don't you just give them a 40 hertz VRR mode? I just find that so odd that they didn't do that. Yeah, a couple of... Well, there are more people are getting... Especially since um, HDMI 2.1, we're starting to get more variable refresh TVs. Mm-hmm. And the more... Like almost all of them are now. Well, if you buy new. So we're, we're dealing with legacy technology problems yeah. here, right? So they're, they're building to a legacy technology standard, which is 60 hertz. Meanwhile, like any TV built after 2022 probably has a 4K 120 with VRR and any TV worth, worth the money. But, you know, that's a huge thing. So once that becomes a larger portion of the market share, then game developers can target more effectively. I have one, so I love when they target it. But we're, well, I think that that's also what they're doing with the PlayStation 5 Pro is they said, well, we can go in two directions. We can get more RAM, go make this a six to $700 device that will tell developers like we did with PS4 Pro, although that was obviously cheaper, you know, you can take this and you have to do all this stuff. And if you do, it can actually run games at like double the resolution or triple the resolution, but you have to do all this stuff. And then they went, I don't know. It seems like right now, the biggest thing people complain about is frame rates. Half of the games are getting VRR modes, uncapped frame rates. And we can give someone something that could cost $500 if we wanted it to again. And every game now just runs smoothly. And I think they said, we're going to go with that option because that's obviously the option that's not going to have as many instances where Bloodborne still runs 1080p 30. Like, yeah. Let's force them to get something out of this. Also, it's cheaper. So like, why not go that way? Well, they have they have a bunch of technologies at their disposal, too, that they didn't have when they released it. Like FSR 3 is now a thing for frame generation. They have, and maybe developers in that are talking about ways that are especially using the the new MPU in the PS5, there could be a lot of interesting ways devs could use that. And maybe it won't need as much memory. If right. Doing, right. If they're doing AI acceleration in ways to offload, mem- like make things lighter. You might be able to get a de facto resolution boost without having to add more RAM. 
you know. When this is the eventual byproduct of these processes. I'm going to, I'll tell you, right, I get bothered with fizzle and stuff. And when particles behave weird in FSR2 or when you get haloing around your characters or weird things in DLSS, those things still bother me. But they're, they're growing pains. Eventually, we're not going to know anymore. They're mm-hmm. going to get harder and harder and harder. I don't know whether it's it's a release that's going to happen this summer, or I don't know whether it's going to be two years down the road. But I've seen Unreal's T, uh, TAA get better. The first generation Unreal 5 TAA was really bad, and the most recent ones are actually half decent. There's These are going to continue to improve. Now, oh, there was some other thing that I was trying to... Oh, engines. So engines are starting to catch up. So in the last year, now we've seen Ubisoft, I'm pretty sure their avatar engine is now mesh shading accelerated. And we also have Alan Wake's engine mesh shading accelerated. So we're going to start seeing either big boosts in geometry, right? At similar to current level performances, maybe a little bit under. And we're going to start seeing games with similar level to previous geometry with much better performance. So even within UE5 updates, performance is dramatically increased. We've had to, in our game, continue to upgrade with UE5 just to get the performance upgrades because the original versions of Unreal 5 were very hard to get good performance in your games, but the optimizations are coming with each version. Unfortunately, it breaks things, so you have to repair things mm-hmm. as you go through. Sometimes it fixes big problems. They had a huge foliage problem for a while that was driving us nuts. But, you know, we have to, we've had to keep upgrading to get with this. But there are going to be some really, really interesting. There's existing hardware that, like mesh shaders, that have existed for a while that we're only seeing right mm. now appear in engines. And I think I said exactly, there's going to be a two to three year lag before we see the engines implemented where we see what these things can do. So, and then there's going to be new hardware that comes and it's going to be the same lag. It's going to be a two to three year lag before we see what those do. So when Sony puts an NPU in there, that's very important because they have some of the best developers in the world and they're going to be targeting that hardware directly. So we're going to see some really interesting use cases for right away. And people are going to do interesting things with that kind of accelerator. And they already like the things they do. I think we underestimate how much uh, Sony's enjoyed some of the things. Like, for instance, they made their own audio solution and they made it compatible with everything. So they built mm-hmm. the Tempest audio system and then they just remapped Tempest audio to Adobe Atmos, right? Like, so when they finally implemented Atmos, they were just ready to completely using their accelerated technology generate the audio all in a full atmos space because they already had the tech doing it they like when they make things like that and they're working so well that when they implement them another way it's already working and i think that they they really like smart ideas like that and i think they've made those with the ps5 pro but we'll have to see what the implementations are yeah because like the ps4 pro they clearly aim to have it be as frictionless as possible, but then boost performance. I think with the PS5 Pro, it's just so obvious when you look at like them using a four nanometer Zen too. They're like, no, we're we're going to make it frictionless. Like this yeah. is you you we're <laughs> we're gonna make you get a benefit even if you don't want to lift a finger. And then we're gonna say, well, how much do we have to spend to get there? And let's minimize it. Um, but you know, this is something I've seen people argue about in the uh, Moore's Law is Dead Discord. So QH Freddy writes in and he says. 
In my assessment of the PS5 Pro, I believe that upgrading the GPU architecture, like they are rumored to have done, is much more of a headache for game devs than upgrading the CPU architecture. Yet to improve performance on the CPU side, they only appear to have done a clock speed bump. Can you speak to how difficulties on the developer side play out for changing CPU versus GPU architectures on a console? Well, I actually want to jump in and say, QH Freddy, you say it would be more of a headache to do the GPU than the CPU. They have to do the GPU to get any performance. So I don't think it's really comparable to if they should upgrade the CPU because it's not going to be a pro unless the GPU is stronger in the first place. So they were always going to have to put work into that. But then after that, I think it becomes, well, what else do you spend money on? What else do you tell devs is going to possibly break a game? And I'm wondering what you think about this because I've spoken to people at AMD that said they worked on the APU for the PS5 and they told me, there are a few little tweaks in this custom Zen 2 in the PS5 that make met to the metal backwards compatibility more reliable. And they probably have to make sure that translates into any Zen 4 version they made. And then recently I realized if you look at the amount of transistors in a Zen 2 CPU versus Zen 4, I think Zen 4 is like 70% more transistors. Well, that's more cost. More space, the, too. The, the, with that, that's what I mean, cost from the space. Um, Aren't they basically just getting a lazy Zen 4C? Like, so instead of 3 gigahertz Zen 4C, they're going with 4.4 gigahertz Zen 2 on 4 nanometer. They can still get the density improvements. Now, Zen 4C is way more efficient, but it's not a laptop. What do they care? And they can just shrink it. That, that's my thoughts on going with Zen 2 again. Is I mean, it's the same amount of transistors. They can just die shrink it, clock it a bit faster saves them a ton of effort and it's almost like they're getting a c architecture it's just not as efficient but you know what an extra 10 watts in a 200 watt console i don't know if they care the cpu is a big bottleneck i would guess on the ps5 because it's just going to stop them it, like the the well, bottleneck for them. what though because well, getting it, the, the high frame rate so if you look at it there's no reason that in a 120 hertz game like whatever some of the ones that they've released that those games couldn't hit 120 hertz on the gpu component in the ps5 it's the cpu component that's stopping it it's the the, the but which is- game because even when i look at flight simulator which by the way isn't on playstation um, I can't find a game that can't hit 120 hertz with Zen 2. Like, we're not talking 240 hertz. But like, Zen 2 clocked that low? Like, on... 4.4 gigahertz would be higher than it is on PC. Yeah. All, when you run a 3950X, I owned one. It was If you were actually running a game, yeah, there's a couple cores that were hitting higher, but actually run most there'd be like one core that if you bl- didn't blink you'd see it hit 4.7 yeah, but these aren't these aren't equivalent to the desktop components these are more equivalent to the laptop components where we did see frame rates dropping on games so when you look at you know, those are running at like three something gigahertz in but laptops. it's not the gigahertz it's the cache so it has reduced but Renoir cache. outperformed uh desktop send too at similar clock speeds it, it didn't need more cache because well it's monolithic so they didn't need to do that trick mm. Uh, I was going to say in regards to his question that GPU improvements are always safer, I would guess, in a console than CPU improvements. There still are games that that set their timing based on the CPU. And my guess is Elden Ring is one of those. My the, oh, yeah. you there's a subset of games where if you just change the CPU architecture, you're likely to break the entire game. And that would be the biggest risk with um changing the cpu gpus are different because you have vsync 
made to cap your peak performance. So mm. you're not you're less likely to push your engines to your breaking point because they'll hit a frame rate limit long before they do that, and then they'll just idle and be cooler and quieter. So at the bare minimum, it's less likely to break games in a console setting where you're not interacting with like a graphics API like DirectX and having a huge range of hardware that's trying to do with it. It's much much more talking directly to the hardware in something like a PlayStation, and there's more risks of breaking games, would be my guess. Which- Even with the GPU, though, too, but not as much as the CPU, because, you know, the Xbox uses DirectX. PlayStation, I forgot, uses some version, basically a Vulcan, I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, it's some sort of Vulcan-ish thing that they use. But So I believe it's more to the metal than Xbox, but you would still say even with more to the metal it's definitely more abstracted than the CPU and less likely to break, right? Yeah, it's, I, I think that in general. And they went, they did big architecture shifts both times. So obviously they went from GCN to RDNA, from PS4 to PS5, and they maintained compatibility between the two of them. So it's theoretically possible. And they went from uh, And Jaguar I think they basically have a PS4 mode. Like, I think if you make a PS5 game, I've, I heard a developer, I don't remember if it was you, say there's a flag to just yeah. run it in PS4 Pro mode, basically with a better CPU. Well, yeah, there's there's advantages to there's there's things that they built in, and they made sure that they had the instruction sets in place so that they could limit it in specific ways, for sure. So it's safer. It's it's still safer, but in a mid gen refresh where they're ex- dealing with the existing library, then I think that they just found that GPU was way safer to do, and it would get more visual results, right? So they can keep the game running at the same frame rate, more or less, but then increase the visuals quite a bit on the GPU side. There's always like tests. You're going to have things that are GPU bound. They're going to be memory bound, or they're going to be CPU bound, and you know until until we release a more powerful PS5, we're not going to know where all of those games lie. That's always the fun when you get the pro model and you get the boost mode and whatnot is seeing where the bottleneck mm. was. Because yeah, I guess we, uh, we'll definitely be able to test that. Yeah. So we'll have some examples after that where we'll know to some extent where those those bottlenecks are in that specific hardware where we wouldn't be able to tell before. I think the GPU upgrades safe. Hopefully we see some CPU performance, but I think that they're more wary about I think they want to build in custom tech with the die space that they have available. They don't want the power consumption of the entire thing to go crazy. So they or and maybe I don't know. I think that there's some advantages to specifically what they're doing and then they're going to rely on some proprietary tech that developers can play with to see what what people can actually do with these things. Ever feel like a dog chasing its tail as you scour dozens of eBay postings and CD websites looking for a safe way to get reasonably priced Microsoft software? Well, you don't have to do that. Just go to cdkeyoffer.com. This piece of content is sponsored by cdkeyoffer.com that offers both Microsoft operating systems, office products, select games, and even some gaming hardware peripherals for reasonable prices and you know they've been a sponsor of moore's laws dead and the entire team here for years for a reason they've been good to me they've been good to dan they've been good to dozens of me and dan's family members and friends for years now and they've also been good to the moore's law is dead community so whether you're looking for steam ea uplay or playstation keys or of course microsoft products or gaming peripherals support moore's law is dead by using the offer code broken silicon for 25 percent off all microsoft products and die shrink for three percent off everything else on the website support moore's law is dead by supporting one of our best long-term sponsors cdkeyoffer.com today well so 
And, you know, I don't know that they feel that pressured either. I mean, Clean Sweep writes in again and he says, that the PS5 Pro definitely seems like it's going to be a thing. Do you think that pressure from game developers will get Microsoft to push refreshes of their series consoles? It's it's harder for Microsoft because they positioned their their X as the premier console. So they they launched mm. essentially with the idea that they're presenting a pro and that people had that option. So if they were they gonna release a Z, right? And then Well, and if they were gonna make one, they would have had to have already made that decision. They would have. But I think the bigger question long term is are they gonna have to discontinue the S early or have mm really painful resolution targets because i it's some games we're already starting to see that we saw that with what was uh one of the first unreal 5 games uh avium they basically were it looked kind of really poor on xbox series s so we're already at the point now that i was always worried i think i remember being in one of these podcasts with you before when we were talking about the s before it released and i was wary about that specific console's longevity and i think it was mostly about the ram too although i think you were a bit concerned about everything i was concerned about everything we knew the ram was going to be a problem but i was concerned about a four teraflops consoles feasibility long term and Mm -hmm you know, presenting it as a next generation console and it's held up okay for the time being, although oftentimes it's missing features that exist in the bigger games. And as, as games get more feature rich, I, there is a chance too, that Microsoft's just going to, it'll, it'll ride out the generation for sure. But the sales volume between the PS five and the series X is already very far from each other. And well, and I'm curious what you think about this, because I don't know if we actually talked about it, but like it's emerging more and more right now in the sales numbers that it's like the Series S is outselling the X four to one or something. And yeah. so if you're a developer, I mean, you're going to go, well, number one, we're going to program for the PS5. Number two, <laughs> maybe the PS4, actually. And yeah. then number three... Well, we're not going to optimize the Series X. We're actually going to spend all of our time making sure the S's, because people keep the, people always talk about the X, but I think what people need to remember is the Xbox Series S is Xbox's main console. It's one of the That is what it is. Yeah. And, and and not by a little bit. Like, but it's not even close, actually. And I'm wondering, like, they, they can't drop the S because that's most of their sales. I know, but I'm I'm saying from a competitive standpoint, when we hit the pro is when that's going to be the most obvious. Mm -hmm. right before the pro it won't feel that way because it is still playing the same games and when you do get a good game that runs on the s with good visuals yeah maybe 1080p or lower but you know it looks good enough on a tv if you're just looking to game and have a good time but when we start having the games that are barely running like all these ue5 games running Mm -hmm. all of this that's that's when it's going to be harder to hold up that argument and it's been a good console for a lot of people in the meantime. And I don't want to to badmouth it directly, but I was always wary about, you know, to some extent in terms of raw performance, it was slightly under from the GPU side and a one X in some regards. Right. And we actually see some game cases where it carries out that way, but it's, it's going to be very interesting going forward with, xbox i don't think i think that they've they've always obviously they branched out very successfully to pc but Mm. a lot of my xbox gaming friends just game on pc now and they have an Mm. xbox membership they just have the game pass membership and they play on pc 
And so a lot of them have already migrated away from the console. I, I don't know necessarily that they've lost the gamer base more than they've lost the, the console mindset of that space. Whereas those gamers, I still have lots of friends that play Halo that sure. go and play on Steam together. <laughs> well, some of them play on Steam. A lot of them play it on Xbox Game Pass. And I've, I have found that that group of people is actually the easiest people to play games with online because mm-hmm. I have friends that play PC outright or, P, or PlayStation. And the conversation has always been, oh, what about this person? Can they buy this game? Can they afford this game right now? What's going to happen? Are we going to play that together? Okay, but with my Xbox friends on Game Pass, you just mm. log in and you just look through the Game Pass library. You limit your thoughts to the Game Pass library and then you play those games together. And there is something mm. that's been enjoyable about that aspect of it, but I have a Series X and I haven't turned it on in a long time because every time I'm just playing those games on PC with my friends. I'm using all the Xbox interfaces and... But I do think, to some extent, the lack of specialness about mm. about having those games exclusive where you're exploring and finding out something interesting about a console has been lost with this generation with Xbox. And then they're branching over to PC. So it's like anytime you get a, an Xbox game, you have the opportunity to play that game at much higher frame rate on PC if you have a reasonable PC. Right. And then right. And like the PlayStation one has the SSD and then all of those PlayStation features, which, you know, if you don't care about them, why wouldn't you just play it on PC then? Like, I I really don't see why you wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, there's sometimes I do find with me specifically, I enjoy console to some extent because me too, because it awakens a different part of me. If I go on a PC, I can't get a menus. It like awakens the tinkerer in me. And then uh, the second I'm trying to play a game on PC, I'm in menus, flicking things, doing that. And I've played this, the first 20 minutes of the game for five hours, <laughs> adjusting settings, I know exactly seeing how mean, it goes. Yeah. And then if it revealed anything about my computer, now I'm like testing my fan airflow or reapplying thermal paste. But if I play on the console, I just play the game. And I accept that this was what the developer managed to assess their vision for it. And they're putting it out there. And then I enjoy that. But I, I do think that... To some extent, Xbox has lost what made the console made a console a console and made it feel special. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I actually love the way that the Series X works, the interface, the design, how games play on it. But I end up like it's it's the best unmemorable console I can think of. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because what's it? I mean, the things it's competing with are unmemorable usually for very bad reasons. Um, it, it's a great console that I don't use, and that's a. It's but it, well, it's so great. I have when a I question do. though. Like, let's say they are running into issues with the Series S. Would they really discontinue it and make a Z, or wouldn't they just try to do the new generation sooner? Or do you think they would just say we're done? Because I, the suspicion I get is that, and frankly, I think they should have done this this gen, is that what they're going to decide to do is just every five years, it'll be kind of like the Surface laptop where Microsoft said, you know what, none of you guys can make convertible tablets well enough. We're going to make a baseline so there's something out there to compare against. Mm -hmm. And they just make a new Xbox that actually runs Windows. And it'll have 32 gigs. Maybe it won't be as strong as the PlayStation 6, but maybe it'll be cheaper and come with Game Pass. I don't know. And I think once they stop obsessing over winning the console war and performance and just try to make a good device, which, by the way, it's Microsoft. Any good device should be able to run actual Windows, in my opinion. If you want it to sell well, that's what people get it for. I think that's when they're going to succeed. But I, I kind of feel like if this generation continues to like 
Like it seems like they're selling less consoles than they did Xbox One and aligned sales all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Like if that continues, I think we're just gonna see they're not gonna worry if they beat PlayStation. They're not gonna, you know, worry if they have a gimmick. They're just gonna make a gaming box that's five hundred dollars every five years and runs Windows. And I think that's when they'll finally start succeeding personally. Maybe a streamlined down version of Windows where they can they sure. and gaming. All the better to finally create that. Wouldn't that be nice if there was an Xbox mode for your PC? <laughs> Yeah, an Xbox mode for the PC and then a console that had like a that'd be very interesting. I I they might be if any company would be pushing down that, I don't think they're gonna kill off the Xbox brand ever, but mm, I do no. think that it what they've I've said this since the one, but they've been approaching this as an API rather than a console for a long time. And that has unique advantages and disadvantages. It takes off a little bit of the the sparkle of what makes a game special, but it also it also made like the developing and porting games around very easy and targeting one of their platforms and being able to release it with multiple modes. And then even they treated their old games like an API, being able to do nine times resolution increases yeah, on them nice. across the board. There's specific things that they've done that are really they're they're very forward thinking. I just as as that old school gamer who loves like every nook of cranny and what hardware can do, I'm just I I would hate to lose them because they they really bust into this market with their elbows trying to get this gaming space and they've got it and I want them to keep strong and keep in it because they're a great partner for indie developers. They're a great resource. They're like Microsoft are some of the, the best people I've talked to. I've had lots of great conversations with people that work at Microsoft. But can't on they Xbox achieve and, all that by just making a Windows gaming box? Like, does can, it have to be a console, you know? No, and, and, it, and that could still compete with Sony. That's still competing with Sony without pigeonholing yourself into being Sony. How do you beat the competition? You make a better product. You don't try to make the same thing they're making. Well, I can argue this, I guess. I have a lot of, I have people that I know that got into PC gaming during the pandemic. And then kind of as they got some attrition from games or weird situations or frustration with any component failure or whatnot, they kind of cycled off. Mm. I know people who did cycle off of PC during that. And obviously, like streaming specifically has made working on PC directly fairly popular. But I think that more and more people are realizing that they probably are not going to be streamers themselves. And then on top yeah. of that, they, uh, they had a couple headaches. Because it only takes a couple big headaches to make people really be like, oh, I don't know if I want to deal with that again. I don't think anyone... And I love it, so it's not a big deal. But come on. We've all been in the Steam forums at some point or another for some issue that we're having with our game it is less than it was 10 years ago the amount of times you just go into the steam forms and be like metro 2033 won't boot yeah (laughs) whatever you know that happens a lot less often now Uh, or i want to use this controller interface and then it doesn't and then i want this and there's there's things on pc that i can see because i'm not saying this in that pc is a bad thing the only reason i'm bringing it up is why microsoft might be adverse to targeting exactly oh, what you're describing that this is these are the reasons because the people that buy this their series s right now are not people that are looking for headaches they're people that wanted a cheap good gaming experience 
And that's what that's they're getting. Why I today. think you make an Xbox mode to the OS that is custom tailored to only Xbox. And maybe moving forward, you can start offering other options. Like you can say, hey, we noticed a lot of people are making gaming handhelds that use, you know, Strix. So it's tailored for Microsoft Xbox APUs. But we see enough people with Strix that we're going to add a Strix mode to the X and it's tailored the same way with flags and whatever. And it'll be like, you'll have to get your graphics card Xbox OS approved to make it work. And it's probably only going to be a very set amount of hardware, mostly APUs for that. But I still think that's an avenue where like, yeah, there's a Strix Halo supports Xbox OS because enough people have it where it makes sense. And again, you can still boot into Windows mode with the Xbox console. That way you're still buying something that you can use for everything, which is, I think, the main benefit that they could leverage that Sony can never compete with. What they lose is the dev buy-in. So right now, like if they did this mode that you're describing, it's on them, right? It's it's so much harder without that dedicated console to get the dev buy-in to the degree necessary to make sure that experience is streamlined like that. The reason that them having that console space is so important is because they do have a surefire version running well on that with developers targeting it. There is something about having eyes on me mindset. Like I built this box, so developers have to look at it because it has market share. Microsoft is is actually one of the best in terms of reach out and communication. Mm-hmm. They're great for communicating with devs. They have lots of supports. They have a lot of outreach. They're they're big with devs, regardless how well the console sells. And devs have lots of really good experiences with it. ID at Xbox was a great service. Uh, like a lot of upcoming game developers, studios, acquisitions, like all of that's tied into this. And they have a really, really good dev-facing ecosystem. So I think that they do need that I, to some extent they need that console whether they can spin it off of their whether they can mm. they can really like just file down the edges between DirectX and the DirectX version in Xbox and then get them to be so perfectly symmetrical that's they're pretty close already but they'll be even better when they get it even better maybe they'll be able to do that but i just i think they need that focus because otherwise, how are they going to guarantee people are pushing things at the right resolution for their game, with a profile for their game, mm-hmm. all of this? Well, I want to be clear about my proposal here. It would be they're just making another Xbox, you know, and let's just say, hypothetically, they're not going for top performance, but it's, you know, something four times stronger than the Series X. It comes out in 2028 or something. Mm-hmm. It has 32 gigabytes of RAM and an SSD and who knows, some other bell or whistle. And it has Xbox OS mode. It can boot into Windows. And that's all they're focusing on. So it's really no different than before. It's just it can also boot into Windows. And then if they add a Strix, if they had Strix support to Xbox OS, it doesn't come with all the optimizations. It, it's it's kind of just boy like paring down the OS so it's simpler and runs the same way. But you shouldn't expect it to be as optimized as Xbox. And they will only put, or they'll put most of their efforts still into Xbox. It's on AMD to make sure their Strix is optimized if they want to go for it, not on Microsoft. Yeah. Well, so I'm actually, I think, going to skip some of the Intel stuff just because, frankly, I bet you'll come on again to talk about the stuff that's coming out 10 months from now anyways. And I want to start talking more about the AI and game development stuff before... We close out the episode. 
Um, so Melodic Warrior writes in and he says, with AMD launching a 16 gigabyte card for under $350, namely it's 330, do you think this is a card that game developers will enjoy considering the VRAM for and the price performance? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think game developers will, they like that it's a higher card in a mid-range one because it might give them some excuses to point to if their game mm. does well in some things like oh you could have got this card and look at that would have run it great but it, we the, the middle size game developers to small don't have the resources to buy every video card on the market we bought i think we bought four for each vendor mm-hmm. for low medium high ish so we have test cases so that we could just be like hey run it see how does it work does it boot would would a regular person consider this playable or not? And that's probably the most that our size developer could do with something like this. But you know, bigger developers will. But I think it comes down to the same thing as it, the GPU market's always going to be harder on this. And game mm-hmm. developers always develop games a little bit too big for the britches and hope that they know that the next generation of GPU should be out by the time their game ships, and hopefully it will solve some of their problems for them. Mm-hmm. But you, you end up kind of in a weird space because uh, you can't target everything. And it's like, I always, I hate easy and hard difficulty modes in games. because I, I do too. I just, I, give me the experience. What do you think it should be? Because I know what game developers do. I've talked to way too many game developers, and like easy mode is so often like cut the spawn rate, cut health in half. Right. And hard mode is double health for an arbitrary reason and do the. But then you're going to run into scenarios that are just stupid. No, normal mode is usually the one that's like 80% of the playtesting has gone to. And then Mm -hmm. as long as you have some of your playtesting audience beats it on hard, you ship with that mode, even if the vast majority don't. So it's a similar thing with GPU breadth, right? Like there's going to be the cards that get the bulk of the play. Like we knew. We know with our game with Pharaoh that we're working on that 40, we need to make sure the 3070 and maybe the 2070, right? It plays the game. That's, we know that in our heads. We need to make sure that those cards, like the 30, 3060, 2070, that we're, we're making sure it can run in some capacity with compromised visual settings on those in Unreal Engine 5. But it's, it can be difficult to achieve that sometimes. So, you know, devs will they'll, they'll look at the low end, they'll make sure that it's going to be playable enough by enough people, especially if they're doing multiplayer and they need to make sure that they'd have a wide enough audience that can actually play their game, that they have graphic settings that maybe they don't look great, but they exist to allow more of the lower hardware mm-hmm. in place. And it's exciting for one vendor to ship whatever, a but decent card. A decent well, I, I, card. I'm wondering what you think about. If, who you'd recommend it to as well because i mean uh, for me three it's 330 dollars. it's it's a highly overclocked 7600 so it's like let's say it's 6700 non-xt performance most yeah, yeah but it has 16 gigabytes it's hard for me to recommend any other card next to it anymore just knowing how much vram matters right now yeah it'll um, live it'll live long it'll have a good life i can't recommend a 4060 for 30 dollars less are you kidding me? It's eight gigabytes of VRAM. I can't recommend anything above it or below it until you, basically now I'm just like, get that or save up for a 7800 XT is basically my recommendation at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're great cards. Actually, the friend I had that picked up a 6700 XT even has been just loving it. He's mm-hmm. just, it had enough VRAM, hasn't given him problems. Yeah, he can't like 
run at 4k or whatnot but he's been having a good time with the gpu and i think that it's going to fit a lot of that niche people that want to build a pc they want to have fun playing games and they want to make sure that you know the ray tracing performance probably isn't going to be amazing on it but for everything else it's going to run just fine it has the ram it can do whatever you want it to it it can do things right you can at least see it right you can put the ray tracing mode on for a few seconds (laughs) and then turn it off afterwards and then go on with your game but there's it's an it's a neat idea i would love to see it ride up the stack and i'd love to see it force nvidia's hand because really at this point in time there shouldn't have been a single 40 series or Mm. or a 7000 series gpu with less than a 12 gig frame buffer in my opinion there just shouldn't yeah i I think amd shouldn't have launched the 7700 xd or they should have called it or given it 16 gigabytes and some or and or, or just waited and launched it later to get rid of the yields as a 7700 and just no one pays attention to because they almost had it they almost had 24 20 16 16 16 yeah and yeah sure there's like a 200 8 gigabyte card whatever but I just think it was a mistake to launch any 12 gigabyte card. They almost, and, and I, I, I find it kind of appalling that people don't bring that up enough with like some of the high end NVIDIA stuff right now. There shouldn't have been a single card that was under 12 gig and there, uh, the rest of the cards should have been plus 16. And we should have had even, I would have said the 4080 should have even had 24 gig. And I would mm-hmm. have preferred if the 4090 had 32. Well, Jeff R. writes in and he says, in 2023, I built my dad a gaming machine for his living room. He's always been on PlayStation, but myself as someone who uses a 4090 on an LG OLED, I know what 4K and ray tracing at 120 hertz looks like. So I would have been embarrassed to buy him a PS5. So along with DLSS 2 and 3, 16 gigabytes of VRAM for his 4080. I messed up writing this a little bit, but that's what he got him, a 4080. I know he's having a great 4K gaming experience for the remainder of this gen, most likely. Or do you disagree? Do you think my calculus that 16 gigabytes is safe is a right calculation? Or do you think it will already start to have issues in 4K in the next five years? It's not the resolution that's going to be the issue. That, that computer will run great. And it'll run 90% of games pretty great for the next five years. It's overshooting the GPU. It's overshooting the CPU. It's overshooting the RAM. The only issue that's going to come up, like I've said in previous episodes, is the, the stutter from the fact that the storage is so much faster. We, we underestimate that on the PS5, it's basically one copy is equivalent to four on PC. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way that it is. It was an AMD slide deck, and it was in NVIDIA's and Microsoft's at GDC last year. Like the PC has to move the data four times. It has every to move the data because the, the GPU and the CPU and the RAM are all separate on it. So it copies to the CPU, back to the memory, copies to the GPU, back to the memory. And like these things happen. And because they happen like that, you don't get what you get. So we're seeing stutters in a lot of single-player games on PC. And good, really good developers will curate their games so that they're not noticeable or they work around. Mm-hmm. But we're still going to see a lot of points. So it's not going to be a perfectly stutter-free experience. I cannot, I promise, I cannot guarantee that that computer will be stutter-free across the board for the next five years it will during those starters it might drop to 40 or 30 frames per second and then it'll shoot back up to 120 like it's a killer mm-hmm. computer it's going to be amazing it's, there's nothing wrong with the hardware itself it's really just that there are some key advantages and there's disadvantages to the disparate nature of pc the fact that the pc is a bunch of separate components assembled separately is going to be a bit of an issue for how big games are getting Games are just getting very big. When you have a game with 100 gigabytes of texture data, 
That's a lot of data to pass in a short period of time as you're moving through an area very quickly. And if you're speed running and you're moving through it very quickly, then you're going to cause even more of those issues. But that's a, a key advantage the PS5 does have. It's the only advantage it has. You'll be playing with way better settings, yeah. higher frame rates. That's the advantage you will face. And that's a current developer hurdle that you see in almost every game if you run too fast through where it's loading the next area. And you saw it in the Dead Space remake. You saw it in like several games over the last year. And some games you don't see them in as much, but you do also don't walk as fast. I didn't see it too much in Alan Wake. It was pretty great at that specifically, but my, my running speed was pretty heavily capped. So it's hard to know in that game specifically. Um, Elementus writes in and says, with PCIe Gen 3 and 4 NVMe SSDs now a mainstream build choice for desktops and laptops, is there any chance that we'll see game devs start to build games with new features which rely on fast storage? Thinking of things like level shifting features that we saw in Ratchet and Clank. Well, I mean, they do require that for the PC version. If you have a hard drive, the game doesn't work. But I'm just wondering if we are ever going to get to a point where the performance spec of your SSD matters for gaming beyond the fact that it is not a hard drive. I mean, I think it's already happening, but I think to make the question more interesting, like when are we actually going to see them not just go, you can get by with SATA and we think you should have NVMe and where are they going to go? Hey, gen three minimum or gen four minimum. And then they build to like four gigabytes per second drives. Well, they'll do what like Alan Wake did with mesh shaders, right? It just warns you when you boot the game. It's like, you can enjoy whatever happens happens, right? Mm -hmm. You you'll have situations like that for sure. We need it to be the standard. And even unless you implement, you think like in the next year already, it's going to start happening. We're going to see warning menus in games that say, Hey, drop an NVMe in, which sucks for anyone that has a reasonable computer that just doesn't have a slot for it. Do you think they'll test for how fast the NVMe is, like the PS5 does when you put one in? No. I think as long as it's any gen, like the the Series X NVMe is is not as fast as the PS5 one, and these games have been porting back and forth between there, right? It's it's going to be... You think it's years before they're like, it needs to be Gen 3. Yeah, well, it, it will be fine, right? Like, obviously, we want faster storage. It'll be critical. The bigger thing is getting the software, right? Because I think... Even once you get in the game, you can load a game, but once you get in a game, I think we're still copped, capped at a lot of times, unless you're using direct storage or using NVIDIA's new version of this or AMD's new version of this, we're capped at our peak transfer rate of like 500 megabits, megabytes per second while in game. I think I remember that from the GDC talks that I went to last year. And then when you have direct storage, you enable your speed of your hard drive mm. during gameplay at the cost of frame time. Right, because it's taking GPU. It is actually now. you don't have the co-processors the consoles have. It is actually yes. using your GPU. It's, to do it's it, using so. your GPU time, so you're at the cost of some GPU cycles to do it. However, you get the full speed access of your hard drive. So we might see more things utilizing this specifically. We're going to see more games require NVMe, more games built with DirectX direct storage or NVIDIA's. I don't remember what the name of it is, but they're, everyone's on the track to implement this across the PC space, and it's going to start to become mandatory for some games. And then you just run it, and it'll, it'll use that software ecosystem, and it's going to use some GPU time. You might lose two frames per second or 10. I don't know. It'll be dependent on the game and how much data is coming through there, but it will, it will become mandatory. The second we get, whatever, who knows, Silent Hill 2 remake could be one of these, where it's having two worlds simultaneously with insane mm. details where or someone just has a new idea outright there's going to be some game that pushes some concept 
that requires that storage and that speed. And then we're going to maybe a 300, 3000, you know, kilometer per second racing game. Who knows, right? F zero, mm-hmm. whatever. We could have these situations where a game maybe require that much speed. But it's well, I think, take- what is it? Star Citizen requires you to because if you, that probably has something to do with how fast you're moving in outer space. And they're like, hey, man, you need an SSD, a really fast one. Otherwise, you, you can't fly through space at a fast enough rate. So I do expect that to be standard. And I think that we're going to see probably the first games limit you on drive speed in this, I'd say maybe 2024. We might see one or two games ship that say, hey, you can run it. Here's your warning. We really want you to have an NVMe. And they'll probably be like, Gen 4 recommended, but we're not going to test it. It's just know that if you're slower than this, there will be sections that could have issues. I think they'd be fine with Gen 3. I think they'd say Gen 3 recommended. That's what I would guess too. Yeah. Um, uh, the only reason I think they would say Gen 4 is then they would build it to like, because like, the fastest Gen 3s are as fast as the slowest Gen 4s, then they would know at least you have a fast Gen 3. That's the only reason, like the Gen 4 recommended, Gen 3 required, or something yeah. is what I'm guessing they'll say. Yeah, because I then they so. know it's at least a gigabyte a second or whatever Gen 3's minimum is. I don't it, know. Well, yeah, well, they'll be using direct storage or something like that, and then they'll recommend some hard drive. But it, it's going to be a game that has a concept that does that. We're probably not going to see it needed in multiplayer sections soon because mm. they want as much breadth of users. So this is primarily like a single player thing we're going to be dealing about because in multiplayer, you're just going to build a map that fits in that memory and be fine with it. But, you know, and then if your map's slightly below that or slightly above that, you're just going to start cutting trees and removing buildings and other things until it fits in that window. So you don't have that problem. But, you know, I have a question here. Um, I'm going to try to like shorten some of the discussion about... um, DLSS and FSR that I prepared ahead of time. This is one of the longest scripts I've prepared, so there's no way I can get to all of it tonight before we fall asleep. But one question I wrote down to ask you, because it kind of ties into stuff we talked about before, is like, could you see AMD realize that they have like a FSR mode advantage if they use the NPU and an APU to accelerate upscaling for the graphics card, part of the APU, or use it Maybe you have an NPU in your CPU, and it like if you have an all AMD system, you have a version of FSR that you can only get if you have an AMD NPU. Do you think that's something they would consider doing? And something that I would compare it to is smart access memory. They, they didn't really need all AMD to do that, and they were like, "Ooh, we can try to get people to get an all AMD system so they have smart access memory." With I think it was Zen three or so, or Zen two or something. Yeah, they tried to do it with Zen three. Yeah, do yeah. you think that's something they might do with NPUs eventually? Well, they need to. Like, they need a proprietary advantage to push people towards their hardware ecosystem. And if, like, like what NVIDIA has done three times, because NVIDIA has done this. They did it with CUDA. Mm-hmm. They did it with ray tracing. They've done it with other things, too. So when you have a proprietary advantage in a specific software subset i mean i think amd would try to approach it in an open way where it works just not as well on other vendors but they definitely want that they want and they'll get experience with the playstation 5 pro potentially they will and and they get the developer experience because yes hardware engineers are great at thinking about hardware but they're not necessarily always the best at thinking about how it's going to be used and that's often why good software innovation comes down the line and forces hardware iterations because they need people they need a mass of people interacting with their hardware to make those changes to make them know what the hardware needed all along and we're going to see that 
We're going to see this relationship. I've talked about this in the past between FPGA and accelerators, accelerators and AI. You know, this is all stuff that we've talked about before, but it's going to be apparent. And and it's going to be really interesting to have an MPU on CPU and an MPU on the GPU mm. because we will find situations because if you're in a situation where you're GPU bound, you're going to want to be using your MPU on your CPU instead. If you're in situations where you're CPU bound, you're going to want to be using your one on your GPU instead. And they'll have more of an option to do that in a way that communicates. Mind you, you think using- it'll be easy enough to just like have an API though, where like Battlefield 8's doing that. Like it go- looks at your system and goes, oh, he has two MPUs. So we'll use this one here and this one here. And they can and just kind alternate of- based on workload. You think they can do that from an abstracted way, though? That's not too hard on the developer. Because that's the thing I'd worry about is, oh boy, Meteor Lake, Hawkpoint, Strix, NVIDIA, AMD graphics cards. There's going to be a lot of hardware combinations. Yeah, I don't think we have to do to like PS2 level balancing where you had to like like ride the line between the two processing units to make it run well at all. I don't think that it's going to be like that. I think it will be, and I think that we're going to be using like open libraries and stuff Mm. in comparison to when what we did with a lot of these other things i think that surprisingly ai has opened up like nvidia hasn't had the lockdown on it that they had with cuda there Mm. are other things opening up where they have there's interesting applications we're seeing startups with ai accelerators start to take ground tens torrent is is actually making headway so is you know, AMD has managed to make some headway with this just because for, there was so much demand for it that people needed to look at alternatives because they couldn't right. buy enough NVIDIA. They couldn't buy NVIDIA anyway, so they might as well make AMD work. Oh, try. Hey, there's another hardware vendor we can see. Oh, we only had to do this to our software ecosystem. Oh, actually, Rolcom isn't too bad, and we got it running really quickly. Okay. You know, we're learning things about this. So there's opportunities here for sure. And there might be, I can't personally right now until I start to see more of like what AI implementations we start to see and where they need to happen in the process. Because it might turn out outright that uh, dialogue stuff is way better. So if you're generating, you're doing generative AI stuff using language models on in-game dialogue, it's better to run on the CPU because it's less contention for resources. And you might find that the, the inverse is necessary on GPUs where anything that's happening to the rendering pipeline, whether it's upscaling or it's polishing effects or where it's generating effects in-game, which could be possible as well, you know, we might find that that stuff has to be GPU bound. So we might find completely separate pathways for mm. what what we end up using those units for in each. That there there might just be, yeah, it either can in theory run either, but you're already in the GPU. So just mm. your frame time wise, it makes way more sense. So then we might just delineate which ones go here, delegate this to this side, and then these to this. And then games might split that way. Hey, whatever, we're generating an audio file to store in your memory with your custom character's voice that you decided you wanted to pitch like this to this and this, and then it goes through the entire dialogue and it generates your voice with it, and then that stores in text files on that. That's way better on the CPU. There's no reason to go to the GPU for that. They might find stuff like that. And if you don't have an NPO... It's all going to go to the GPU and the CPU, and it'll be slower. And once <laughs> like again, like I am an artist who talks to a lot of developers, and my mind is high in the sky with some of these things. So if I say anything wrong, I apologize entirely. But these are just ideas that come to the top of my head. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Lazarus writes in and says, Avatar's implementation of FSR 3 upscaling seems to have made a decent step forward in terms of visual quality. Do you guys think that this level of quality is going to be the default for FSR 3 upscaling in the future and moving forward? And do you have any clue why AMD decided to release FSR 3 in a completely broken state instead of just waiting a few more months for it to clearly get a bit better? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's honestly... We underestimate feedback. We really do, right? And developer feedback versus gamer feedback. Gamer feedback can be really useful. When you have a lot of people interacting with your software and then they find those and then someone in office goes and lights a fire under someone else to fix something, that's a very useful part of the pipeline that you can't see until things get public facing and enough people interact with it and play with it. And even if, you know, it's like tech YouTubers and forum people, which are sometimes some of the most useful resources for nitpicking everything wrong with whatever it is, right? They got it. They, they kind of snuck away with a very, very quick implementation, got a lot of feedback. And then they, they probably went back to the studio and say, Hey, these are all the feedback. It's not working with variable refresh. It's not working with this. We're getting frame pacing issues and this and that. And then all of a sudden, by the time Avatar, a bigger profile game releases, Mm-hmm. They have they have it in much better run, and then people are like, "Oh, wow, that didn't take very long to get much better." So you, so yeah, you think that there's no way around it. I mean, I'm sure you agree with me on this. I mean, AMD launched FSR three when they did because they felt they had to. I mean, it looks yeah. silly when they were so far behind Nvidia, and it got better quickly because they launched it. Like you know, and you're saying that's just kind of always what happens. But yeah, you know, they've handled it better. Yes, but it was. I don't know if they could handle it better with their resources. Oh, I I see. I I I know Nvidia could have handled it better, but I know Nvidia's resources. Right? Mm -hmm. They have way more engineers on hand, and they probably passed it. Nvidia would have talked to a lot of game developers about it, and they would have had that leeway with game developers. AMD has some leeway with developers, but the biggest portion of their market is consoles, which actually forces the AMD mm. conversations to be more targeted that way and recognizing features. And now we're talking about something that isn't likely to be used in this swath of games on PS5 yet. It will come into PS5 games for sure, right? But we're, we're seeing more of that where they don't have... They have a lot of... like I'm not, AMD has good dev support as well, but it is primarily on console side and some on pc as well but they just don't have the same market share on pc to make the same adjustments behind the scenes and the per dev resources that nvidia has nvidia has a lot of per dev resources that they can give out so that when they implement a feature they get more more data points coming back to them to make these kind of corrections early and i really don't know if amd had enough and this Mm. is why they need to do what they are planning to do with laptops they need to get that market share to play around with because once they have the market share then they can have more of these conversations with game developers and i think that even looking at their ces thing their partnerships are growing people Mm -hmm. are liking them people are liking to work with them their partnerships are growing quite a bit and they now they need the mind share now especially on radeon they have a good mind share on ryzen they can get better with Ryzen, they can get better with Epic, and they need to get Radeon, Radeon to catch up in Mindshare. I, I honestly think Radeon products are, predict- are better than people give them credit for, for sure, at the very least. But they do need to get the Mindshare up on it. And they also, it's better to not do it with a risky product because people will hate you forever if you sell them a $2,000 card that does not work particularly well. 
And I think after hearing what you just said about FSR, which is like, well, they don't have the resources. It was always going to be imperfect. And then they were going to fix it. I would say then the biggest mistake they made was, was just how clumsy it was. Like saying, we're going to launch FSR 3 in 2024. And then all of a sudden, a month later, they're like, never mind, it's out now. And it makes it so you can't play Counter-Strike. Um, like, I think that's the type of stuff then that was a mistake. Although I will say too, the more we talk about this, like, two-year rehabilitation plan to their mindshare with Radeon, I can't help but feel like they probably had it 90% ready or they thought it was 90% ready. And they said, well, if this is really just needs to be ready by the time Strix is out, let's just push it out now. We'll fix it. And then when Strix and RDNA 4 launch, it'll be ready. And the longer we wait, the longer it's going to take us to make it perfect before RDNA 4 launches. But again, I think the messaging thing where they were like, oh, surprise, it's out now. And like, all of that was stupid, though. Well, FSR 3 is already, I think a lot of people have found it more impressive than they expected in terms mm -hmm. of how the frame generation part. Yeah, when it frame, works well, the frame generation part when people are like I'm, every time I search YouTube, I see people doing mods with it, putting it plus DLSS and jamming it in everything they possibly can. And I guarantee it's going to be going into like emulators soon or going to have. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing that's going to happen is like laptops almost always have mm. have higher refresh displays now than they're great at actually filling yeah so to some extent it i'm might... always just so confused at these razor laptops with like 360 hertz displays i'm like your cpu isn't remotely strong enough to hit that what are yeah. you doing but now with frame generation you are at least having a reason for those displays mm. on those monitors. So anyways there's there's kind of a multiple fronts approach to what this is. I think that they they knew I don't know how well they knew. I but they they did only do it in a couple games. It was two games originally at launch, right? For Spoken, which was a long since released game, mm -hmm. and then Immortals of Avium. So it was I, I kind of wish to some extent GPU vendors were a little bit more open to like literally just putting an early access flag on it. Yeah. And then, then people would treat it more favorably. Like, hey, we're not launching this. It's like they might have in terms That's of... That's what I think they should have done, yeah. If they have shareholder buy-in, if they have this and that, because there's a huge difference between someone's mental approach when they're approaching an early access thing versus what they think is a feature. Because if they're looking at it as early access, they're looking for flaws and they're expecting them and they're going to report them happily because they're like, I reported a flaw in an early access feature versus this is supposed to be ready, right? Like that's, it's a perception shift that makes a huge difference. And I think that if AMD actually would have said, hey, it's coming to these products, but this is the early access version of FSR3 in it, then people would have had more of an open mind and been more willing to... Or, or made it more and more clear that this is early access. Please go easy on it. And instead, what it felt like they did, even if they probably called it beta to a certain extent, is I think the issue is they said it'll be ready next year. And then they said, no, it's ready now. They did the worst of both worlds. They should have said it's in beta now, out of beta next year, and not surprised to done it. They should have said, actually, we're going to do it early as a beta in December or whatever they did, should have done, you know, not rush it out in November or whenever it came out and it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I want to make sure we get to at least a couple of the AI questions that we prepared here. So Clean Sweep writes in yet again and says, now that more studios are announcing or talking about how they use and intend to use AI tools in development, what's your take on the public reception to those announcements? And to that, I take that to mean like, what are the, 
people reacting badly to that really isn't a big deal? And what are people reacting, not paying attention to that actually might be bad? I honestly, I think that people are starting to get, I, I've seen a big uprising of uh, individuals. It's hard to know with my circle. I don't know if my mm. sample is biased because like 80% of the people I interact with on Twitter, or Instagram are artists or art fans. So I see the anti-AI aspect all the time. So I don't know if, if I'm seeing a larger sample size than what is actual. But I think the generative stuff is always going to be more poorly received because it is putting job at risk. I think that there's been a bit of AI art fatigue, which is kind of nice in the sense that people now have seen enough of it that they know what it looks like and even really mm. good stuff. It just has like a really polished, really like standardized look to it. And they're almost getting a little sick of it. And I'm glad that they're getting a little sick of it. That part is good because it still sells the need for artists. I think there's a lot of room for artists working with AI to do really amazing work and do outsized work for them. That's going to be the immediate benefit that's very interesting that hey this well you were yeah because you were pretty and i don't think unfairly as that's not my point but pretty pessimistic about ai the the last time you were on and i'm wondering if you're as pessimistic and it's hard to quantify really you know but still like what just your gut I'm, answer are you more or less pessimistic than the last time you i were am on? i am not less pessimistic I my the same pessimistic. I'm very worried about human motivation for the next generation, which is one thing. Mm. I also think that our laws and ecosystems are too slow for dealing with things like this. We're on an like I mentioned in the last episode, we're on an exponential curve of progress, and we have been in our entire lives. We're at what forty years from Pong to now. <laughs> like this yeah. is an absolute insane exponential curve of progress, and lawmakers and this can't keep up with it and i think like this is a crazy idea i hope you don't mind talking about but like i think that you know this is the best way i can word this i so i think mario party proves the flaws with all government systems i don't know if you've ever played mario party yeah i I really like the third one so what Mario Party does is you it's always trying to balance the game in different ways. But if you play enough games of it, you kind of experience every government. Mm. And what I mean by that is if you have a game of Mario Party where you're going around the board and one person is winning every game, getting all the coins, buying all the stars, also going to those stupid spots where they move things away so other players can't get them. That shows the flaws of capitalism because you can have someone have runaway success and then start gaming the board where it doesn't even matter if they have success anymore. They always are successful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in Mario Party, you have someone win all the games, get all the coins, and then all of them are just distributed to the other players over and over again and their stars are taken away and then everyone ends the game. Everyone ends the game with two stars and 20 coins and one person won all the mini games in the data. And that shows the flaws with communism when you have Mm. this. The problem is that we're always balancing between the systems. It's not that there's a perfect system. It's that our systems always need to be balanced. And Mario Party is an interesting example of that because someone's always angry at the end, which proves that none of these systems are are (laughs) flawless because you end up with these 
these ideas and these ecosystems. And I'm probably going to say several stupid things in this. So I apologize. These are just crazy ideas that run through my head. So far, I think you're going very strong. So don't worry. Yeah. And I think that another thing about all of this, like I, I kind of, I don't necessarily love all the left right arguments. I mean, I primarily voted left my entire life, but I'm just, I think we haven't been able to solve these problems for a thousand years. Like we've had neoclassicals and romantics. These things have cycled endlessly for reasons. And we're not looking at the entire system flawlessly. If you just elect me though, Brian, and put my face on oh. every building, I promise it'll be okay. Well, I, then, and then someone always shows up and says that basically. And then it's not okay. It's well, actually very much so not okay. <laughs> I think it's a different thing. It's that one represents a phase of ideation and one represents a phase of hold and assess. Even if we had 10 perfect ideas in a row, if you implemented them all at the same time, they would all fail. And we need to have ideation and then we need hold, but we also need assessing. The problem is, is that we implement when we have one party implement a bunch of ideas, they treat them all like they're perfect. I, I think that like what I'm trying to get to this is AI can do, I, my guess is amazing things, but it's going to do really terrible things if we don't have a government infrastructure that is prepared for it and that can adjust with everything it throws and the curve of progress that it makes. We need to be able to have a flexible system that actually can assess. We've never replaced anything in human history without matching its functionality. Mm -hmm. iPhone replaced the camera and it replaced the calculator and it replaced the phone in one fell swoop because it had the functionality of them. Anytime we've replaced anything in the past, the reason cell phones replace phones, it's like all of these things. When we have a device that replaces another device, it's because something matched or exceeded the functionality of it. And in order to have whatever is going to happen with government next, we can't look to old systems. We can't do that. We have to think about what system is going to be ready for AI. And I think that the funny thing is that the only thing I think government should do is probably what it's currently the worst at. It needs to supply infrastructure for monitoring and they work the worst software in the world like every government software is the worst but that's what it needs to be good at because it needs to be able it to needs to know when something's going wrong right away well you can and you see this all the time i've seen so many laws for homelessness come in and i swear a lot of them just increase homelessness oh and, yeah they do it they, uh, they often do it's, well it's, and, but the, i shouldn't laugh but it is funny to me like from I, a I don't third think it's, party perspective yeah i don't i don't think it's particularly funny i think that what we need to do is be honest hey we're going to try this phase of ideas and we don't know which ones are going to work out and we underestimate all the time usable thresholds with concepts no one assesses this i have developers make me tools all the time all the time. And it'll be, hey, you know, it, they make it and it's just a number and you type in a number and you're like, okay, what the heck does this do? And it's like, oh no, actually it only works between 0.5 and 4.1. And then I'm like, well, tell me that before I use this thing, first of all, right? Because if it only has this usable functional threshold, and then when I start using it for art, I find that that range is actually only 0.9 and 1.1. Right. So there's functional thresholds for things. So we need to be able to put laws into effect that we can adjust like that. So we can say, hey, this came on too strong. Look at the data. Maybe adjusting will make it better. Maybe not. And if we don't have this stuff for AI, it's going to destroy things over and over and over again. And that's my fears with it. So I, I guess I just, I still have my same fears. I'm still pessimistic 
about I want AI to be for net good and I want it to not completely derail human motivation. I want that to be the case and I want it to be looking for beneficial ways to operate. But right, we're going to see exactly what I described last time I was on. We're going to see lots of individuals topple 10 to $100 million industries mm-hmm. on their own by seeing their skill set as a problem they can solve with generative AI. We're going to see it over and over and over again. And if we don't have infrastructure in place to deal with the people that are uprooted by this, it's going to cause lots of issues. So, yeah, because, you know, pie in the sky, you know, rose tinted glass in uh, perspective on it is there's going to be upheaval. There's nothing we can do about it. But maybe what we can do is make it as much of a net benefit as possible. You can only do that if you are taking the data you need to to solve the problems when they pop up. Because, you know, it be like the internet, probably mostly net positive, but if we could just tackle the problems it creates right away, it would feel much more like a net, net benefit to everyone. Well, it was net positive initially. I mean, it's net positive for progress, for accumulation of information, for technology to develop at the rate it has. It's That was a necessary stepping stones in terms of people's social behaviors, dating behaviors, all of that. We don't know whether it's net positive where you know or mental health well-being there's there's specific things that we can't possibly track yet and we don't know and maybe it's net positive for one group and net negative for another group but once again you need data on that to even know what's going on with these things i think that if we are going to keep riding this exponential curve of progress we need an exponentially of reactive infrastructure and it's not going to be any old infrastructure it has to be something new like, this is why I call whatever my crazy idea is, and someone else has probably said it at some point, is I think that it needs to be like some open source government approach. Everything polarizes mm. to an open and closed system. Almost everything. And I think to some extent, I, I realized this, I used to get really frustrated when I was a really open person, like open source person, and I get really bothered by someone that was closed source because I love taking computers apart. I like building these things. I like... There isn't a console I've owned that I haven't taken apart at some point in time for some reason or another, right? Like, that's just who I am. But then I realized I don't like Android that much once I got an (laughs) iPhone. And it was, you know, I know a lot of people that love Android and stuff. And I love my open spaces on PC. I love it in other places. But I think it's a complexity problem. People can only handle what complexity they... They can only handle the complexity they're choosing. And then they want to simplify other aspects of their life so that they can be more complex in other spaces. And I realize I don't want to. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's what's going on. Because, you know, I've, I guess I won't name names, but I've got family members and I have people I've met who are brilliant doctors. Oh, my God, but their opinions on some political, I mean, they don't, they don't know the first thing about what's going on in another country, but why should they? It's a brain surgeon. Like, why do they need to be good at that, too? Yeah. You know, they simplify everything else in their life. Yeah, we, we pick our complexities and we pick our, pick our com- simplicity in life. And I remember there was a point where I thought I was going to stop making art. I was going to stop needing to be better at art and I'd pick up guitar or I'd pick up this. And I just need to keep getting better and better and better and better to keep up. And then I look at, like, the art book of Mega Man from 1984 or whatever, Conquest of the Crystal Palace. And it looks crazy with how bad some of the art is in there. And I'm like, (laughs) I wish the standards were what they were back then sometimes. You're like, hey, I'm getting there. You're getting there, though. That means you are getting better. Well, no, you're way... Like, I picked up one of the early Blizzard books. I'm like, I draw way better than this, right? So it's like, it's funny when you have those moments when you... 
like seeing the progress of art, but then the standard rises and then everyone has to match that standard before they do. But that's just happening endlessly in all these professions across the board. And all of us are at a capacity limit. So we need we need to be ready to where this gets really out of our hands, because, which is what's, what's about to happen. It's about to get out of our hands. And we're going to be really distracted for a while with really interesting trinkets. But if we don't have infrastructure in place to keep up with what changes are happening, things are going to get weird real fast. And that's... I I agree. I I didn't expect you to go in that direction with this part of the conversation. But I do think it's an interesting argument that we always seem to, or often at least, seem to bet wrong on how things will change when an upheaval happens. And well, then maybe the right move is to make it so that you can respond quickly and accurately because you're not going to predict how things change yeah exactly and and to have points to compare against right like you need you need a couple of things you need data to work on you need to see if if something happens some event happens why it happened was it policy was it law was it some innovation right we need markers to be able to track these things but it's not going to be any current government system or any past government system We need something that can keep pace with now. And we need something that actually looks at the benefits of everything that's currently happening holistically without bias. And in order to do that, they have to look at the positives of all sides of all of these arguments and what function they're serving, because we will never replace them without matching their functionality. That is the problem we've had, is that we are not honest with what the phases of how society works are so that we can build a model that actually is the iPhone of government to replace these things. Mm. And we're not going to move forward with government until we do that. But the problem is we're running out of time. We're, we're talking like existing paradigms are going to solve this problem when they're not. We're about to be hit with a tidal wave of progress. Like we and have maybe even tidal waves <laughs> and maybe even tidal waves, <laughs> maybe even literally tidal waves. Well, we're going to be hit with both of those. All right, so that will be a harsh cut, but our stream uh, crashed there um, almost mid-sentence, but I think it'll work out fine. But I wanted to reconnect, of course, to at least say the goodbyes part of the podcast. <laughs> it doesn't just end on us talking about world governments abruptly. But uh, yeah, please, yeah. please plug your, you know, but I think we got through the part that I wanted to get through on that conversation, which was... I think an interesting look at like really how to solve the AI problem. So anyways, though, please plug whatever you want, you know, tell people where they can find you and your work. Yeah. I mean, you can Google my name, Brian Heemskirk. You can find me pretty quickly. Once again, my thoughts are my own. I apologize if I said anything bothersome or whatnot. I didn't mean to. It's just thoughts. I don't think we said any, or you said anything that crazy to be honest. Just yeah, I always got to be careful, I guess. But you can, our game, uh, Fair of the Sundered Tribes, which is kind of like, I don't know, I, I used to describe it as like Animal Hunter, Animal Crossing meets Monster Hunter with a bit of Zelda in it, will be coming out hopefully this year sometime. So keep your eyes open for that. It looks a lot better than it did in its initial debut footage because we were fighting with uh, Lumen to get stylized rendering to look well. So it looks really much better now so keep your eyes on that hopefully you agree with that in the future and uh yeah i guess that's me and my plug Farah the sundered tribes i found it very quickly yeah i'll put a link i'll actually put a link to this on steam yeah in the description i think would probably be the ideal way to do it um okay I expect like a really high quality video barrage seeing much more of what it looks like now and stuff in the next 
four or five months, we were just really struggling. Um, not struggling. We just needed the right amount of time and resources to get uh, stylized rendering happening with Lumen and Nanite enabled. So trying to have all of the up-to-date Unreal 5 features, but uh, using them in a way most games don't. So that was kind of the idea of what we were going to play around with for that. So hopefully um, when you see, especially when you see the the upcoming trailers and stuff, you'll enjoy that and uh, check out the game if it's something you might be interested in. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure... Yeah, I mean, that'll give an excuse to come on again and promote it as well. And we can actually get to the Aerolite conversation and stuff. Yeah. But um, I mean, of course, we got to like an almost three hour podcast, whatever it ends up being on, probably at least two and a half <laughs> hours when it's edited to that. There's there's always plenty to talk about. And if if we didn't cut some of the conversations, it'd be, it'd be a four hour episode. But um, all right. Well, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you to everybody for listening um, and watching, you know, make sure you're subscribed to the Moore's Laws at YouTube channel, ring the bell button um, so that you actually are told when I post. And then also make sure you subscribe to Broken Sick Audio Podcast app of choice. Give us a review and join us on Patreon to ask us questions and get bonus ad-free episodes and stuff as well. Um, all right. Thank you for coming on again. And everybody have a good rest of your week. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Laws Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Kerry Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawisdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Kerry no Sugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly possible. Every month, and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong, we love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey, 
If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it. the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Foles, Z-Jits, Daniel D, Ian Clifford, Aaron Close, Jen Renner, Daniel High, GZ Ziggy, Brian Regelman, MJB1, Sam Miller, Deke, SNES Chalmers, Nicholas Buckner, Jeremy Ferriera, Valcom 11, Jensen Wang, Andrew S, Gregory S. Ecker, Sarcastro, Evan Dingle, Hardforum.com, Chris Rich, Greg Wantick, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Compressed Earth Blocks, Shredbird, Dr. Foreman, Benjamin Cannon, Jonathan Blake, Franco Frederick, Holden Mobley, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Simi Wallace, Slicky, Jordan Simkovic, Stefan Hart, Julian Leaked, Meat and Pork, The Boss Haas, Tim Robb, Penta Winta, Travis Gooding, Stefan, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Roger Davies, Michael Medee, McGee, Greg, Patrick Grow, Amiable Chief, Tommy, Mark Mitchell, I should Mark Raidmaker, James Anderson, Cole Attic, Judson End, Chrysantine, Colt, Colin Tadars, The Eternal Dreamers, Cameron, Wesley Sager, Henry Zhang, Neithra Zing, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Hexa Puma, Toka, Reginald Ari, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Settler, Loophole 35, Winstar, James I, Raider, Corey Leonard, Little Germany, Shea, Milton, Pulse Media, Dave Schultz, Dave uh, Mel- Melodic Warrior, Mac Daffy, Steven Dix, Chuck Glidden, Brett Jones, Austin Haggerty, Justin Bustle, I-711-700K, Jamie Witters, Joe Foot, Hardland, Slush Boss C2, My Sharona, Earth Taurus, Jensen Angima, Joseph Kelly, Samuel Park, Keith Moore, Hemsa Gung, Tails2299, Mio Vale Vega, John, Vinti CZ, Sisyphos, The Forbidden Juice, Perleakedman, Arby Racer, AZ, Richard Cowgo, Win Wang, Michael Cozy, Dr. J Mad, Alex Vega, Freedy, Brian Wright, John Swin, Jola Martina, Kikum, Elbergun, Solarize 80, Thalo215, Matthew Marlowe, Raisin Biscuit, Rennick, 1982, Jeff Johnson, Round Mick Kiki, Cornster671, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music, and Jesse, come on, stop looking down. And thank you to everybody who watched this year. Seriously, have a Merry Christmas, have a Happy Hanukkah, any other holiday you celebrate, Happy Holidays, and have a great New Year, everybody, and here's to seeing you all in the next year.